0: Rescue teams continue to look for survivors in the rubble of the powerful earthquake that hit Turkey and Syria, with families standing by hoping for signs of lost loved ones. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, February 7th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, i Mullins. Also ahead, as President Biden prepares to give a State of the Union address, we'll hear from political speechwriters on the tough task of finding common ground in a fractured Congress.
1: A lot of the response uh, is kind of predetermined almost and kind of baked in the cake. And the White House knows that.
0: Also, artificial intelligence is advanced enough to create artwork in the style of living artists within minutes. Does that breach copyright law? And AMC Entertainment plans to roll out new ticket prices based on where you sit in the movie theater. It's 401. News headlines are coming up.
2: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. At 9 o'clock Eastern tonight, President Biden delivers his first State of the Union address to a Congress divided, with a Republican-led House still largely questioning his legitimacy, and to a country divided. Polling shows some 40 percent of Americans say they were better off financially before Biden became president. But tonight, the president intends to reiterate calls for unity. NPR's Asma Khalid reports he will announce a set of new policies he thinks Republicans and Democrats can work with.
3: There is no doubt the president intends to take a bit of a victory lap tonight, and that includes touting legislative accomplishments and economic progress. But Biden also plans to build on priorities he articulated last year. Kate Bedingfield is White House Communications Director.
4: In his State of the Union today, the president will announce a new set of policies to continue to make progress advancing his unity agenda and deliver results for families across the country. This
3: unity agenda includes efforts to end cancer, support veterans, tackle mental health, and take on the opioid epidemic. The White House says all of these are issues where members of both political parties can find common ground. Asma Khalid, NPR News, the White House.
2: Night has fallen and so have temperatures in Turkey and Syria, making the job harder for rescue crews trying to find survivors buried underneath thousands of destroyed buildings. In some cases, desperate family members are using their hands to pry up rubble in the hopes of finding loved ones missing since Monday's earthquake. The death toll has now topped 7,000. NPR's Rob Schmitz has more from
5: Istanbul. Turkey estimates more than 8,000 people have been rescued alive from the rubble of thousands of buildings that collapsed from the initial quake and its hundreds of aftershocks. But rescue crews are struggling against freezing temperatures and snow to rescue those who are still trapped, trying to reach them before they succumb to their injuries or hypothermia. The situation in northwest Syria in the midst of a civil war is more dire. The only road the UN authorizes to carry aid to that part of the country from Turkey has been damaged, leaving hundreds of thousands of people without electricity, heat, and in many cases, shelter. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Istanbul.
2: Dozens of countries are coming together to help. They're sending teams and equipment. That includes firefighters and search dogs from Los Angeles County and urban rescue workers from Northern Virginia. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv that Israel and the Palestinian Authority are also
6: sending help. The Palestinians are usually recipients of international aid because of conflict with Israel and Israel's occupation of the West Bank. But the Palestinian Authority has its own rescue and trauma team of 64 doctors and specialists who respond to international disasters. They were recently in Pakistan helping flood victims. Now they say they're headed to Syria and Turkey in the coming days.
0: This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Brockton Hospital is closed after a fire this morning. The flames broke out in an electrical transformer at the hospital. Firefighters helped to evacuate 160 patients and send them to other medical facilities. The power is now out at the hospital. Bob Haffey is the president of Signature Healthcare, which owns Brockton Hospital.
1: We were able to move all of our patients out of the hospital with zero injuries and zero deaths, which is of utmost importance,
0: obviously. So, Haffey says that there's no update on when the hospital will reopen. He says the facility is still assessing the damage. Former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh is expected to become the first cabinet member to leave the Biden administration. Two people familiar with the labor secretary's plans tell the Associated Press that he'll leave the post to run the players' union for the National Hockey League. The NHL Players Association has been looking for an executive director to take over for longtime head Donald Fehr. Neither the union nor the Labor Department has confirmed the reported move. Walsh was a union leader in Boston before he got into politics. State senators on Beacon Hill might do away with a rule that limits the Senate president to an eight-year term in office. Here's WBR's Steve Brown.
7: The rule has been in place since the 1990s, following William Bulger's 18-year reign as Senate president. When the Senate takes up the chamber's rules on Thursday, they'll consider an amendment removing that eight-year limit. Senate Ways and Means Chairman Mike Roderick said in a statement he's offering the amendment since there are no limits on the term of the governor, and he noted the House did away with a similar cap on the term of the speaker almost 10 years ago. Roderick says there are de facto term limits in place, as any candidate for Senate president must win re-election by their peers. Current Senate President Karen Spilka has had the chamber's top job since July of 2018 and won't hit the eight-year mark for another three years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
0: State wildlife officials say the 2022 deer hunting season was one for the record books. The Massachusetts Division of Fisheries and Wildlife says hunters killed nearly 16,000 deer last year. That's the most ever, and a jump of more than 16% from the year before. The agency says hunting helps manage the deer population. It estimates the state has a deer herd of more than 150,000. 34 degrees now in the Boston area. It's been a lovely day today. There is, though, a winter weather advisory in effect from 7 tonight until two in the morning. This covers Suffolk and Norfolk counties, including Boston, Quincy and Foxborough. Could have sleet and snow, temperatures just below freezing, some strong winds, and tomorrow turning sunny a lot milder up around the mid-40s. Again in Boston, now 34 degrees at 407.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at macfound.org.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
10: And I'm Juana Summers. We start with the gripping scenes in southern Turkey as the country struggles to save people. There's damage across hundreds of miles of Turkey and northern Syria, with the death toll now over 7,000 in both countries. 20,000 more are injured, millions affected in one way or another, with many homeless in the winter cold. NPR's Ruth Sherlock made it to one of the worst-hit cities and saw rescue attempts there. She joins us now, and a note for listeners that some of the details of this conversation may be difficult to hear. Hi, Ruth. Hi. So, you went to a city you've reported from in the
11: past. First, tell us where you were and what you saw in your approach. Sure. Well, we set out from Adena, which is um, a city that's been spared from the worst of the impacts of the earthquake. And it's normally a two-hour drive to Antakya, our destination, a city of about 400,000 people close to the border with Syria. On the way, we passed this huge fire at the port in a coast city. And then around 20 miles out of Antakya, we started seeing this constant stream of ambulances, You know, sirens, wailing, speeding out of town. Those coming in were people going to try to find loved ones they've lost touch with or bring medicines or food. Then we began to see the destruction. And I mean, building after building collapsed. And in one area, they were, you know, on either side of the road, I, there was just debris. And I could smell rubber, dust, and clearly the putrid smell of dead bodies as well. Oh my gosh, Ruth, describe what you saw of the rescue efforts there. What is it like? Look, it's become clear that the damage is just much greater than any rescue teams can tackle. It feels utterly hopeless in there. You know, most of these were residential buildings and the earthquake happened in the dead of night. So people were asleep. You can only imagine how many are inside those that are destroyed. And there's so many destroyed that is just no way that rescue teams can get to all of them. I saw you know, some rescue teams in official clothing on some buildings, some civilian volunteers, like we met these university students from another part of Turkey on others. But then also there's dazed residents or desperate relatives just trying to go through the rubble. Well, it's,
10: I mean, it's incredibly heartbreaking. I understand that you spent several hours watching one rescue effort out of all of these. Can we just take a moment to talk about that story, that one person and their family and what they experienced?
11: Absolutely. So we came to this one building and it had these pink walls and it Used to be seven floors, but it was now half collapsed on its side. And I met this lady, Hamide mansorolu and she's in her 70s. And she was standing outside, watching intently, holding her head in her hands as this digger chipped away at the building. I was travelling with Erin O'Brien. She's a freelance journalist who works for The Economist, and and she helped translate the conversations we had with Hamide. Hamida told us she knows her son is inside and she thinks he's alive um because she's seen him trapped there. Oh my god, how did she find him? His brother dug with his dug with his hands to find him. So she says yesterday morning she'd seen him She'd found him, and she'd seen him move a foot, but he was just trapped amid the collapsed concrete. So we stayed with his family as this uh, rescue worker with a digger, tried to, like, pull the rubble away. But you can imagine how dangerous that is. The building could collapse at any moment. And every time that he got close to where uh, Sadat, the man, was, his mum would, like, wince in terror and pain and shout out, be careful, be careful. And, you know, as time went on, we spoke with a rescue worker Um, there uh, who was trying to help. He didn't want to give his name. He is not sure if this guy's alive. He uh, thinks
4: he heard a sound but he can't be sure.
11: Um, Eventually they did find Sedat but um, it was too late. Uh, His body was brought out and wrapped in a blanket for his mother to say goodbye. Wow, that's so tragic and I have to imagine
10: there are stories and scenes like that that are being repeated all across the city
11: yes absolutely you know we went deeper inside towards the city center but the roads were cut by this point so we set out on foot and it was such a strange change because we went from this place of wailing sirens and drama to this kind of eerie silence with apocalyptic scenes there were rescue workers trying to pull people out of the rubble but without any machineries no cars no ambulances And on one street, we found six bodies that had just been wrapped in blankets from people's homes. We spoke to a rescue worker who stood near them, Shaheen. (inaudible) You know, he's saying for the buildings that collapse vertically, the floors crush in on each other. And from those buildings, they are not finding anyone coming out alive. And that's exactly the situation where we were. Buildings completely flattened. He says the six bodies are the only ones they've been able to pull out from under the rubble after a whole day of work. Hmm. And Antakya is close to Syria. Ruth, what can you tell us about the situation
10: over the border?
11: Well, it's what we're hearing is that there are similar scenes to what we're seeing in Antakya. But one thing I should note is that Turkey is a big country with a powerful economy and a functioning government. In Syria, there's a civil war ongoing, and this has happened in an area where there are already millions of refugees, and rescue, you know, hospitals have been damaged in the conflict, there were already medical shortages before this earthquake happened, now they're completely overwhelmed, and rescue workers are trying to get people out of the rubble without the kind of equipment that we saw in Antakya. Um, you know, one question now for both countries is what happens next? There's going to be shortages of everything, water, food and fuel, all the basics that you need in these cities. And that's going to be a huge logistical challenge. And another question is what's going to happen to the likely hundreds of thousands of people who have now been left homeless? Just in Antakya alone, we didn't see one building standing that you could live in anymore. So The aftermath is going to be felt for a long, long time, and the death toll is going to mount.
10: That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock in southern Turkey. Ruth, thank you. Thank you.
9: Pennsylvania is still grappling with the legacy of the 2020 election more than two years later. Recent contests in the swing state have become hotbeds for election deniers and misinformation. And many local officials are concerned about how that could affect upcoming elections, including next year's presidential race. NPR's Hansi Lo Wang reports.
12: It's been 27 months since President Biden won the 2020 election, including in the Philadelphia suburb of Delaware County, Pennsylvania. But for the county solicitor, William Martin, that election is not over yet. Is Delaware County still dealing with lawsuits over the 2020 election results? Yes. In 2023? Yes. There are those lawsuits alleging election fraud with no substantial evidence. And there's the ongoing criticism that Martin and county election officials have had to face during public meetings. I am
13: profoundly offended to listen to baseless allegations of fraud against me and against other county workers. At
12: a county council meeting a month ago, Martin hit a breaking point.
13: It's time to put up or shut up. If you think there is fraud, sue me. Sue me. Sue me personally.
12: About three hours away in central Pennsylvania. This has got
13: very
14: heated and not necessarily should be that way.
12: By Cumming County Commissioner Scott Metzger urged residents to be peaceful during a public meeting held last month about a hand recount of ballots from 2020.
14: If you are here to get in anyone's face or intimidate someone, you're in the wrong room.
12: Lycoming County election officials found no significant difference between the recount and their original tallies. Still, many election watchers are bracing for more misinformation from election deniers.
15: Those counties are dealing with people who over and over, no matter how many times they've seen the evidence of the integrity of the election, continue to come and yell and be insulting and, and you know, maybe slightly less than before, but those pressures are absolutely
12: still there. That was Lisa Schaefer, who's the executive director of the County Commissioners Association of Pennsylvania. Schaefer says the reach election deniers have through social media has made it especially hard to fight off misinformation. And a lot of it is based on a state law that started allowing all voters in Pennsylvania to vote by mail in time for the 2020 election.
15: The fact that that was such a significant change for Pennsylvania all at once, that's where a lot of the attention has been focused.
12: Mail-in voting has been a partisan flashpoint in the state, with many Republicans attacking a way of voting that they once supported.
16: You know, we're a purple state, so it makes for a bit of a contentious conversation at times around democracy.
12: And it can get particularly contentious when there's a chance to swing Pennsylvania into the red or blue column, says Khalifa Lee, executive director of the advocacy group Common Cause Pennsylvania. There was a sign of hope, according to Susan Gobreski of the League of Women Voters of Pennsylvania. and last year's midterm elections, the state's most high-profile election denier, who was a Republican candidate for governor, lost.
17: I think people reacted to the misinformation that was out there by showing up, and I think that's a really good sign.
12: But back in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, William Martin, the county solicitor, does not sound as optimistic. Where do you think this is going?
13: I'm not sure that I see any significant breakpoint or change that's likely to occur in the next several years.
12: The one exception, Martin says, would be if more Republicans in Pennsylvania start publicly embracing mail-in voting as a way to vote that's just as valid as showing up in person at the polls. Anzi LeWong, NPR News.
10: listening to All Things Considered from NPR
0: News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. President Biden is giving a State of the Union address as the fentanyl opioid crisis has grown to an, into an even more lethal public health problem. That story is coming right up. and In about 20 minutes, Artists versus Artificial Intelligence.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com
0: a solid upswing for stocks today. The Dow rose more than three quarters of a percent, 266 points to close at 34,157. S&P gained more than one and a quarter percent to finish at 4,164. The Nasdaq picked up almost two percent to end the day at 12,114. General Electric is moving its headquarters in Boston. Today, the company said it will relocate its spacious four-point location to a space that is about three times smaller in the downtown tower, one financial center. GE moved from Connecticut to 4.7 years ago. It said last year it would be downsizing as part of a plan to be a trimmer company and as part of a restructuring to split into three independent companies. It's 419.
19: Sending Winston flowers from WBUR is an act of love that supports your commitment to learning and growing. Save 10% at WBUR.org.
0: It's now down to 30 degrees in the Boston area. There's a winter weather advisory in effect from 7 tonight until 2 tomorrow morning. We should have some sleet and rain. Temperatures just below freezing overnight tonight. Should be windy as well. And for tomorrow, could have a cloudy start. Sunshine later, all the way up to the mid 40s. This is WBUR.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health. Containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. It's all things considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana
10: Summers. And I'm
9: Ari Shapiro. One of President Biden's guests at tonight's State of the Union address will be a father from New Hampshire who lost his daughter to a fentanyl overdose. Biden addresses the nation as the opioid epidemic has evolved into a far more deadly public health crisis. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann looks at how we got here and what might come next.
21: One thing everyone agrees on the soaring death toll from the opioid fentanyl crisis is shattering families, scarring whole communities. Brandon Dunn from Texas lost his 15-year-old son, Noah, to a fentanyl overdose last summer.
13: He was murdered by
1: a drug dealer selling counterfeit Percocet pills. Noah was the third victim in less than two months in Hayes County from illicit fentanyl.
21: Dunn testified before the House Judiciary Committee last week. The U.S. has really been navigating two public health crises at the same time, the COVID pandemic and an explosion of drug deaths linked to fentanyl. Dr. Ruhu Gupta heads the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy.
22: Our nation is facing 108,000 overdose deaths in just 12 months. That's one life lost every five minutes around the clock. We're living in historic times. Our North Star is to save lives.
21: The Biden administration has focused its response on health care, trying to get more addiction treatment to more people, while also scrambling to make a medication that reverses opioid overdoses called naloxone or Narcan more widely available. Gupta says these strategies are helping.
22: After more than 35 percent increase in overdose deaths during the first 18 months of the pandemic, the more recent total overdose death counts have remained largely unchanged.
21: So the overdose epidemic may be slowing just a bit, but researchers still say the U.S. is on track to lose another 1.2 million lives to opioid overdoses by the end of this decade. The fentanyl that's killing so many people is flowing into the U.S. from Mexico. The Drug Enforcement Administration says the leaders of drug cartels have decided fentanyl is a moneymaker, cheap to make, easy to smuggle through official ports of entry, and the cartels simply don't care if it kills a lot of Americans.
14: We're not winning, we're losing.
21: The battle congressman david trone a democrat from maryland says fentanyl smuggling can't be seriously curtailed with anything short of a large u.s military presence inside mexico which he says is unrealistic
14: my belief is there's absolutely no way to stop it if we could you know do major raids in mexico with our military it's not our country it's their country they've chosen not to go after the drug traffickers.
21: This is why the Biden administration is focusing mostly on health care. There's a growing conviction among Democrats and many drug policy experts that illicit fentanyl is now a permanent fixture on American streets. But many Republicans are pushing back, arguing more can be done to secure the border and often falsely linking fentanyl with undocumented migrants. Congressman Chip Roy from Texas spoke at last week's judiciary hearing.
14: The overwhelming flood in our borders, distracting Border Patrol from being able to carry out their duty to stop the flow between the ports of entry or do inspections at the ports of entry is resulting in more fentanyl pouring into our communities.
21: But Republicans haven't suggested specific policy ideas or strategies that might seriously slow fentanyl trafficking. So as President Biden speaks tonight, fentanyl has joined the COVID pandemic as a public health crisis that's also a fault line in America's political divide. Brian Mann, NPR News.
10: Today, Salman Rushdie is publishing his 15th novel, Victory City. Even being able to say that is a minor miracle. Rushdie was attacked on stage last summer while giving a talk. There had been a fatwa against his life issued by the Ayatollah of Iran in 1989. But for the past two decades, he'd lived in relative freedom in the United States. Rushdie had completed the new novel just before the attack. NPR's Bilal Qureshi has this
23: story. Salman Rushdie had not spoken out since the attempt on his life last August. But with the release of his new book, he's given one interview to The New Yorker magazine's David Remnick, and finally described how he's healing. Can you type? Not not very well
24: because of the lack of feeling in the fingertips. The big injuries was here. It's right and,
18: into your right jaw.
24: And yes, the neck, and neck, the neck, and and up around here, the mm-hmm. right side of my face. There was a lot there.
23: There were chest wounds, and the liver was injured. Rushdie has lost sight in his right eye, and he is only slowly regaining use of one of his hands. I've tried very hard
24: not to adopt the role of a victim, you know. Then you're just sitting there saying, you know, somebody stuck a knife in me, for me, you know. You don't which, feel that which way? Which I ever. do sometimes <laughs> think. <laughs> it hurts. Um, it hurts. But what I don't think is, that's what I want people reading the book to think. I want them to be captured by the tale and to be carried away and to enjoy being in it and to want to know what happens next
23: and, and, you know, to read a book. That book is Victory City, and here is its opening.
24: On the
25: last day of her life, when she was 247 years old, the blind poet, miracle worker, and prophetess, Pampa Kampana, completed her immense narrative poem about Bisnaga and buried it in a clay pot sealed with wax.
23: Victory City is a historical epic about storytelling. It's inspired by a real Hindu kingdom called Vijayanagar that was destroyed by Muslim armies in the 16th century. All that remains today is a city of ruins that has become a symbol of Hindu-Muslim conflict. That past has been used by India's ruling Hindu nationalist movement to create divisions in the present as the writer Kiran Desai explains.
26: History is far more complicated than the way it is being presented today. And the nationalist view of history is different from the novelist view of history.
23: Rushdie reclaims the wounded narrative of Vijayanagar from Hindu nationalism and turns it into a secular feminist work of fiction. He puts women at the center of his story and his city, recasting Vijayanagar as a place of magic and multiplicity across time. The writer Atish Tasir says that's the magic of Rushdie's fiction.
22: Rushdie's job has been, I think, he's a chronicler. He goes place to place, whether it's Muslim Spain, whether it's Nagar it, It's to find those places where there's this sort of historical controversy, historical fractures of those moments in one's past or in the past of a country that won't go away, that continue to send echoes into
23: the present. Filmmaker Deepa Mehta is a close friend of Rushdie's and read an early version of Victory City.
27: I'm so happy that I'd read the book before the attack. And I'd reread it after the attack. Yes, of course, I kept on feeling, oh, my God, this is uncanny. This is ironic. But never did I ever for a minute feel that it had gained some kind of dark power because of the attack. It was as powerful as it ever was because it was brilliant.
23: Throughout his career, Salman Rushdie has championed writers from around the world and stood with them in the face of censorship. Kiran Desai says she sees the new novel as his gift to both readers and to writers.
26: You know, I think every writer should read this book. It's just a distillation of wisdom.
25: I myself am nothing now. All that remains is the city of words. Words are the only victors.
24: I'm here now, and, I, and I've always been, one of the ways in which I have dealt with this whole thing is is to look forward and not backwards. What happens tomorrow is more, more important than what happened yesterday.
23: Salman Rushdie's full interview with The New Yorker is in the magazine and on the latest episode of The New Yorker Radio Hour. His new novel, Victory City, is published today. Bilal Qureshi, NPR News.
9: This is NPR News.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. In sports, Celtics are off until tomorrow night. The Bruins are off until Saturday. But there is hockey in the city. The Women's College Beanpot Hockey Tournament is underway now. The men's began yesterday. In the game underway at this moment, Northeastern is leading Boston University 1-0. It's the first period. Tonight at 7.30, it's Harvard versus Boston College. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us on your way home today. You'll hear how Boston is moving closer to providing reparations for Black Bostonians. Follow the news at 90.9 WBUR.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, partnering with the National Society of Black Engineers to accelerate STEM education and careers. MathWorks.com NSBE. And UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe.
12: Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that help you think deeply about the world. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Send your gift almost anywhere in New England, and your support will enrich the lives of thousands of WBUR
20: listeners in Boston and beyond. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a dozen long-stemmed red roses. Visit WBUR.org.
16: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden's State of the Union address tonight comes at a crucial moment in his presidency. Despite a string of legislative accomplishments and a historically strong midterm election, polls show a majority of Americans are largely unaware of his successes or don't regard them as such. Here's NPR's Windsor Johnston.
28: The economy is expected to be one of the major topics during tonight's speech. The White House says President Biden will specifically address the ongoing fight over raising the nation's debt ceiling, warning that a default would have disastrous economic consequences. Some Republicans appear to be using the stalemate as a bargaining chip to push for spending cuts, but the administration says not raising the borrowing limit is a non-starter.
16: President Biden plans to travel to Wisconsin tomorrow and Florida on Thursday to continue pushing his agenda, part of an administration-wide plan for top officials to fan out across the country this week. Rescue workers from around the world are mobilizing to help Turkey and Syria respond to a catastrophic earthquake that's claimed more than 7,000 lives. NPR's Kristen Wright reports on a team from Virginia deployed by USAID.
2: Fairfax County Urban Search and Rescue faces
29: the difficult task of searching through collapsed homes and buildings and masses of rubble for survivors and the dead. It's a team of about 80 disaster experts trained at the highest levels to extricate people who are trapped and deploy specialized equipment. USAID's Stephen Allen is in Turkey. The emotional toll is heavy
14: hard when you are working in an environment like that, when you're working uh, against the clock in a life-and-death situation. Um, Really, every,
16: every minute counts.
29: The Fairfax team has six canines to assist and plans to be on the
0: ground in Turkey for about two weeks.
16: This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. The Duxbury mother, who's accused of strangling her three children and then attempting to kill herself, was arraigned from her hospital bed today. Lindsay Clancy is accused of killing her children ages 5, 3, and 8 months last month and then jumping out of a window at her home. Her lawyer says Clancy had mental illness, was over-medicated, and that her family had asked for help before the children were killed. Prosecutors argue that before, um, both before and after the crime, the defendant seemed to be aware of her actions and of clear mind. The judge chose not to impose bail because Clancy is partially paralyzed and remains in the hospital. The next hearing in the case is in May. The NHL Players Association will be lucky to have U.S. Labor Secretary and former Boston Mayor Mark. Marty Walsh at the helm. That is the assessment of Stephen Tolman, the president of the Mass AFL-CIO. Sources tell the Associated Press that Walsh will soon step down to become the players' union's next executive director. Tolman says Walsh would be a great fit.
14: The interesting and most distinct thing about Marty Walsh is he doesn't just have a union history. He has a legislative history. He has a community history. He's just like the ultimate perfect labor leader because he's active in the community.
0: An unnamed Biden administration official says Walsh is expected to leave his post after the president's State of the Union address that would make him the first Biden cabinet secretary to quit. Senator Elizabeth Warren says child care is wildly expensive and hard to find and she wants Democrats to do something about it. She's driving home that point by bringing a Taunton woman to tonight's State of the Union address in Washington, D.C. Eugenio Drago is a mother, a nursing student and child care advocate and Warren says O'Drago's Drago's story is is a lot like other Americans. Here's a woman who wants to be in school. She wants to get her nursing diploma. Do you know how much we need nurses across this country? And the obstacle in her way is childcare. Warren says we don't expect parents to pay the entire cost of their child's public school education, and we should take the same approach when it comes to child care. And Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has announced to the 10 people she's appointed to the city's new reparations task force. They'll study the lasting impact of slavery in Boston and how the city can atone for it. The task force chair will be Joseph Feaster a lawyer and the former president of the Boston branch of the NAACP. Two high school students at the city's Jeremiah E. Burke High School and a college student at UMass Boston were also appointed. Other members include historians, nonprofit leaders, and civic organizers. We've got a winter weather advisory in effect from 7 tonight until 2 tomorrow morning. We should have some sleet, some freezing rain overnight. Nothing accumulating, though, just some pretty slippery road conditions down around 30 tonight. Then tomorrow, mostly sunny skies to start. Then some clouds in the afternoon, highs in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. It's 435.
8: Support for NPR comes from this station,
20: and from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerv Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com.
9: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
10: And I'm Juana Summers. Behind every applause line or rousing call for action during a State of the Union address, there is a speechwriter who puzzled over the exact right wording and the follow-up to the inevitable pushback. So in preparation for President Biden's message tonight to a divided Congress, we wanted to hear from two speechwriters who have an interesting vantage point on what Biden's words can and perhaps cannot accomplish. I'm joined now by Cody Keenan, former chief speechwriter for Barack Obama, and Mike Ricci, who wrote speeches for Republicans, John Boehner and Paul Ryan. Welcome to you both.
30: Hey, Juana, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.
10: So, Cody, I want to start with you here because you helped President Obama craft his State of the Union addresses delivered to a divided Congress. What issues do you expect President Biden to focus on tonight as he is in a very similar situation?
30: Yeah, there's always sort of a Groundhog Day feel to a bunch of these. You know, it's a speech that happens once a year. But it should signal to the american people where we've been where we are and where we're going to go so i suspect that they're going to trumpet uh a lot of the the good story to have to tell you know the fact that half a million people who didn't have a job last month now do unemployment's at a 50-year low gas prices inflation are falling but i think even more important is showing people where we're going to go from here and with a divided congress uh that makes it more interesting
10: and Mike, you've worked for Republican speakers and helped Paul Ryan write his response to President Obama's 2011 address. So I'd like to ask you, are there certain opportunities for Biden tonight to connect with both Republican lawmakers but also Republican voters?
1: So much of this, Juana. It's on Capitol Hill, it's the closest thing to a presidential debate. There's war rooms, spin rooms, rapid response, you know, in-game analysis, who's wearing what color, who's sitting next to who. So A lot of the response uh, is kind of predetermined, almost, and kind of baked in the cake. And the White House knows that. So they know there's only so much they can do to actually bring in the Republicans in the room. So a lot of it is, to your your question, about going over the heads of the Republicans in the chamber and trying to reach maybe common sense conservative voters with rhetoric that appeals to people in the middle.
10: Mike, I want to stick with you for just a second. You worked for Speakers Boehner and Ryan, two House Speakers, that I covered on Capitol Hill. And I'm curious if there's anything that sticks out from your time and working with them and preparing for these Republican responses that you think may be instructive.
1: These responses have become so fragmented over the years. You know, tonight, for instance, there'll be the official Republican response by Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, but apparently President Trump will have his own response. The White House is thinking about all the big different issues uh, on the Hill, they're mostly thinking about you know what the members of Congress are obsessed with. And usually that's two to three things at a time. In this case, probably the debt limit, what just happened with China, maybe looking to see what the president will say about Ukraine and the border. So you plan for everything, but usually you have to you know boil it down to two or three things you're going to hit hard on in your response.
30: And Mike brings up a good point about uh, how difficult this is for White House speechwriters, because you have... Every cabinet agency, every interest group, everybody's pushing on you to get their policy idea in the speech. And it's exhausting. And it's a speechwriter's job to prevent it from becoming a Christmas tree. You know, putting something in the speech just because somebody will be mad that you don't is not good writing. So it's just this kind of never-ending battle.
1: Yeah. And I think different stakeholders will look for different language, you know, on, you know, how much a president puts his shoulder to the wheel rhetorically matters. So committee chairs will, you know, did the president make a vague call to action, did he specifically say pass this bill or hammer an issue home? You know, c- committee chairs, stakeholders, people watching obsess about that stuff. And these are all choices that uh, the White House speechwriters have to make.
30: Yeah, they look to see how robust a certain adjective is. Yep. But you got to remember, the people at home don't watch that closely. You right. know, if they want to know. They want to know what you're saying. They don't really care about how your adjective rates on a scale of 1 to 10.
10: As I'm thinking back over the last decade of having a hand in covering the State of the Union address almost every year, I I can't help but be reminded of a really powerful moment during President Obama's 2013 address. The shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary had happened about two months prior, and he used that opportunity to demand action on gun violence.
16: What I've said tonight matters little. If we don't come together to protect our most precious resource, our children.
10: And now... Biden's address comes a week after the funeral for Tyree Nichols, who was fatally beaten by police officers in the city of Memphis. And we do know that Nichols' parents are expected to be in attendance at the State of the Union tonight. Mike, how might that influence what we could hear from President Biden?
1: Well, I think these speeches want to definitely still have the ability from time to time to produce big moments. And 10 years ago, you know, President Obama saying you know, the families deserve a vote. The families of Newtown deserve a vote. It was a very powerful uh, call to action. And I think the video of the assault was a rare moment when something broke through and resonated so strongly with the larger public. You know, there were talks in the Senate on bipartisan police reform that I think broke down a couple times, but it's certainly an opportunity to produce uh, a big moment that goes, you know, that morning shows will show, that will resonate locally with a lot of people. and. You know, these speeches have changed a bit over the years and as the media becomes more fragmented, but there's still an ability uh, to to cut through and, and reach a larger audience with things like this.
10: Cody, I want to ask you the same question because I know you were the lead speechwriter for the 2013 address that we've been talking about.
30: Yeah, you, you can create these big moments. And, you know, President Obama and I always joke on game day that the beginning and the ending of the speech were in great shape. Uh, and we just kind <laughs> of, we said the middle is fine. And that's the part where you have this laundry list of proposals. Um, But I'm going to give the Biden speechwriters some cover here. There is no clever turn of phrase or story that's going to necessarily guarantee action or secure unity or bring people along. I mean, that's always kind of an ongoing thing. No speech is going to change everybody's minds. But those are the moments that people remember.
10: Last question for each of you. If the Biden team were to reach out to you and ask you for a piece of advice, what would you tell them? And Cody, I want to start with you.
30: Oh, man, I I can tell you that when I was writing these, uh, nothing annoyed me more than somebody on TV saying, here's what the president needs to say. Uh, So, so I'll just couch it by saying, you know, one constant across White Houses, regardless of party, is a frustration that all the good you're doing doesn't break through. And it's just never going to, you know, people, people have busy lives and it also doesn't work to just tell people, here's how great everything is. Um, but I'd be interested to see, you know, getting back to my first answer, what's the story we're trying to tell here? Where, what have you been doing for the last two years? How does that fit into this kind of bigger agenda you have? And a president's job isn't just to tell us how things are, it's to show us how things are going to be.
10: And what about you, Mike, what advice would you give them?
1: Well, I think, you know, there's been a lot of coverage about how the president is going to use this to kind of kick off the, uh, the 2024 election. And, you know, you want to, my advice, I guess, would be just don't overshoot the market to be the happy warrior. You know, you saw with the speech the president gave over the summer in Philadelphia, there was a, a strong reaction to some of his rhetoric maybe being too harsh. And some of that is Washington playing tone police, which is one of its favorite pastimes. But I think even in dire times, people look for something a bit, you know, a bit lighter, a bit loftier from presidents and leaders to the extent possible. So, you know, if you're going to lay out contrasts, absolutely do it, hammer it home. But try to play the happy warrior. I think people, regardless of party, I think people do uh, respond to that.
8: That
10: was Michael Ricci, former speechwriter for two Republican House speakers. He's now a fellow at Georgetown University's Institute of Politics and Public Service, and Cody Keenan, former speechwriter for Obama, and author of the book Grace, about his time writing for the former president. Thanks to both of you for being here.
30: Thanks, Juan. Thank you.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Artificial intelligence or AI can now generate images that replicate an artist's style in seconds. That's angered some painters and illustrators. Darian Woods and Adrian Ma from our daily economics podcast, The Indicator, look at a new lawsuit that raises questions about AI and ownership.
31: Kelly McKernan is a visual artist. And when they were a teenager, Kelly started posting paintings onto an art website called DeviantArt. Not for money, but just for the love of it.
29: Just starting out very eager for feedback and community. Um, You know, just really excited to share.
31: And Kelly built a solid following,
32: continuing to post on DeviantArt over the next two decades. When the first widely used AI art generators came online last year, Kelly saw it as a curiosity at first. That delight for Kelly soon faded away, and that is because Kelly found out that when people were typing in their prompts to these art generators, they were using the words in the style of Kelly McKernan a lot. In fact, over 12,000 times.
29: There's more and more images with my name attached to it that I can see my hand in, but it's not my work. I'm kind of feeling violated here.
31: And then DeviantArt did something that made Kelly livid. So remember, this is the website that Kelly had been uploading artwork to for free over the last 20 years. DeviantArt was now offering a new service where website viewers could pay a monthly subscription fee to get access to an AI art generator. And this AI art generator had been trained on countless images from artists like Kelly. But the DeviantArt artists wouldn't get a cent. Kelly started writing about this on social media. And soon, another artist got in touch. And she wanted Kelly to join a class action
32: lawsuit. Kelly said yes. The lawsuit was filed in mid-January against DeviantArt and two AI companies. And it alleges, among other things, that the companies violated copyright law. The claim argues the AI companies compressed those
31: billions of images and stored those images' information, which it then uses to make new works. And so that copying of information, they allege, breaches copyright. They argue it's a 21st century collage tool. We asked the companies involved for interviews. One declined, one didn't respond, and Stability AI gave the statement, Please note that we take these matters seriously. Anyone that believes that this isn't fair use does not understand the technology
32: and misunderstands the law. Andres Guaramus is a legal scholar at the University of Sussex, and he's got a different interpretation of what AI models are doing when they learn. Andres describes models as learning patterns from the original images and brushstrokes and styles, and those are things that are not covered by copyright law. So he doesn't think that collage is actually the right metaphor here.
13: Even if it was, I think that they would have a problem with copyright anyway, because collage is an accepted art form. It's considered to be fair use.
31: Collages are often decided on a case-by-case basis, hinging on whether it's fair use. Fair use means exceptions to copyright law that allow certain uses of copyrighted works, like for education or if the new work radically transforms the original into something new. And whether the AI companies were engaging in fair use when they copied some kind of information from the original work, that will potentially be what determines this case. Adrian Ma, Darian Woods, NPR News.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Details on NPR's newest Tiny Desk Concert coming up on WBUR.
8: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com tonight at 9
0: o'clock, President Joe Biden will give his annual State of the Union address. This time he'll do it before a deeply divided Congress. Listen live tonight at 9 o'clock on the radio in Spanish and English on WBUR.org. This evening, be careful out there. Could have some rain and sleep making things pretty slick. By daybreak tomorrow, those skies should start to clear, leaving us with mainly sunny skies. Should be breezy and milder, just about 46 for a high. Could have some sunshine for the first part of Thursday before rain clouds move in later in the day. Still in the mid-40s, though. 34 degrees now in Boston.
28: Growing up as an immigrant, I often felt like there were these two competing ideas of romantic love or what it should be. There's the classic falling in love at first sight that we celebrate in American pop culture. And then there's this, quote, more practical version that says, love will grow with time as long as your values align. The two ideas felt at odds to a younger me, But the slightly wiser me, the journalist me, knows there's more than one way to understand big, complex ideas. I'm Yasmeen Ammer and I'm a reporter at WBUR. We want to keep bringing you new perspectives and tell stories to deepen our understanding of one another. You will help us do that when you send your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR. Visit WBUR.org to get started.
10: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm
9: Ari Shapiro. Almost nobody likes to sit in the front row of a movie theater, and AMC knows it. The cinema chain plans to roll out a new pricing structure. Those willing to crane their necks will get a discount. And yes, the better seats will cost more, as NPR's Elizabeth Blair reports.
33: Sightline at AMC is the name of this new pricing scheme.
34: It's just a reveal. Of what?
33: Of what isn't exactly clear. AMC hasn't said how much tickets will cost, but the prices will be broken down by section, value, standard, and preferred. The cost of your ticket will depend on the quality of your seat.
35: Treat them as our brothers and
33: sisters. Treating all consumers equally is not what this is about, as far as actor Elijah Wood is concerned. On social media, he complained that a movie theater is a, quote, democratic space, and that AMC's new pricing would penalize people for lower income and reward for higher income.
32: It may cause a little consternation with a lot of consumers are very price sensitive.
33: Paul Der Garabedian is a senior media analyst with Comscore. The movie industry suffered during the pandemic. It's on the rebound but hasn't fully recovered.
32: I mean it seems like a time where it would be best just to let it ride and keep traditional pricing because now we're getting more back to quote unquote normal box office.
33: On the other hand he says there are a lot of big movies coming out soon.
32: Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, Indiana Jones 5, Barbie, Wonka. I mean, there's I could go on and on. So there's a really strong slate of films set for 2023. And AMC may feel like, look, we're, we're going to have a great lineup here for you so we can get creative with the ticket pricing structure.
33: It helps that AMC is the largest theater chain in the U.S. AMC did not respond to a request for comment. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. Heads up, musicians, the Tiny Desk Contest is back.
10: Gracias. For the ninth year, NPR Music is looking to give the next great undiscovered artist an interview on this show, an eight-city tour, and, of course, a Tiny Desk concert.
8: Cuando miro afuera, cuando miro adentro, cuando miro afuera otra vez.
10: That's last year's winner, Elisa Amador, and here is NPR Music's Bobby Carter, producer of the Tiny Desk series. Hey. Hey, hey, hey. How are you? I am well. Thanks for being here.
36: Um, pleasure, pleasure. Always a pleasure.
10: <laughs> so how are Elisa and the other contest winners doing? Give us a little update.
36: Listen, they're flourishing. Elisa is doing great. Uh, she goes on tour next month. And she just, last week, she just received the Rising Tide Award at this year's International Folk Music Award. So she is out there shining and grinding.
10: Okay, so, I mean, this is a contest, obviously, so tons of artists and bands are going to enter, but yeah. only one gets that grand prize. So, I do just have to ask you, how do y'all feature the best of all of these other artists and bands yeah. that are sending in these entries? Yeah, yeah,
36: yeah. So, obviously, you, you entered the contest to win, but there are other fantastic opportunities that come from entering the contest. For one, each week we feature uh, some of our favorite videos on NPR.org. And also this year, we will continue our Tiny Desk Top Shelf series. And that's where contest judges, like myself, like Bob Boylan, we feature and we talk about some of our favorite entries. But you should also know that we've had contestants come to play the real Tiny Desk who didn't necessarily win the contest. Uh, we had a huge one with Hobo Johnson. I'm sure that I've prepared you for every guy you'll date and every guy you'll marry. Every guy you'll hate, yes. And also, next month, I I have uh, a contestant who has entered about four times, never won, uh, but she will be at the desk, the real desk, next month. So tons of exposure, and you just never know when you're going to get your shot if you don't win.
10: Now, Bobby, I have to confess that I think you have one of the best jobs at this organization, (laughs) which is hosting these Tiny Desk concerts and also being a judge of this contest along with Bob Boylan Mm -hmm. and some member station DJs and musicians. So. Let me in on some secrets. How does somebody win? What stands out to you in a winner?
36: Um, feeling. Some type of emotion.
29: It's easy to feel like you don't matter.
36: Whether you're going to make us cry, you're going to make us laugh, uh, you're going to make us happy. Something that evokes a real emotion. Uh, the thing I say about the, con- the contest is that you have plenty of time to perfect your entry. It's not like the real tiny desk where you get your one and done. Perfect it. Do it. Do it until you feel something. Uh, last year's winner, it was her, her. Elisa's entry was simple. She looked into the camera and she delivered uh, a very emotional performance. Right. She looked dead in the camera with the, with the guitar and evoked emotion. Same with 2021's winner, Nephi. And even 2020's winner, Linda Diaz. Oh, lately all my heights are marked with
29: questions. <laughs> like how can I, I manage expectations? Why I, while I manifest my greatness. Yes. You
37: tell me just how long I will be waiting.
36: We're just looking for something that 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 really gives you the chill. Um, But also this is a call out to bands this year because there's no shortage of singer songwriters and they're always great But this is a call out for bands. So if you play jazz, if you play R&B, if you play hip-hop, salsa, whatever it is We need the bands to get together and give us something great
10: All right, so let's just talk about the technical part here. These bands you're talking about these singer songwriters How does someone
36: enter? It's very simple. Send us a video of you playing an original song You must have a desk in the video, you must be over 18, and you have between February 8th and March 14th to enter. You can learn more and submit at npr.org slash tinydeskcontest.
10: NPR Music's Bobby Carter, producer of the Tiny Desk Concert Series and a judge of the Tiny Desk Contest. Bobby, have fun. Happy watching.
36: Let's get it. Peace.
10: You know, I have to say, talking with Bobby Carter about all of the fun he gets to have sifting through these entries, it automatically makes me think about all of the tiny desks that we've gotten to go to ourselves. It's the
9: best perk of working at it NPR, is. full stop.
10: Do you have a favorite?
9: Oh, it's this little-known artist. Most people haven't heard of her. Um, her name's Adele. Hmm, okay. <laughs> it was more than a decade ago. She was not playing stadiums. She was still well-known. But I remember she sang Roland in the Deep and forgot to take off her gloves. And when she got to the clapping part, you couldn't hear her clap. And then she cackled and in her unmistakable accent was like, I forgot to
11: take my gloves off. forgot to take my gloves off.
9: <laughs> it, was, it was pretty charming. What was yours?
10: So I think my favorite one that I actually got to see in person was getting to see T-Pain. And what mm-hmm. was so cool was because he's like got this voice that you would know from anywhere, but it's all stripped down. There's no auto-tune. It was just so fun and so much energy.
36: Baby girl, what's your name?
10: And for more information, you can visit npr.org slash contest.
20: Support for NPR and the Tiny Desk Contest comes from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One is proud to support NPR Music and the Tiny Desk Contest. Capital One, what's in your wallet? And from Guayaquil, maker of yerba mate, who believe community comes to life and connections are made through music. Guayaquil, come to life.
9: Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From the George Gund Foundation, working to make Cleveland and Northeast Ohio more globally competitive, livable, sustainable, and just. More information available at gundfdn.org. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of ZeQuil, Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. And
0: this is 90.9 WBUR. We've got a winter weather advisory in effect from 7 tonight until 2 in the morning. It covers Suffolk and Norfolk counties, including Boston, Foxborough, and Quincy. Could have some rain and sleet, making things pretty slick. By tomorrow morning, around daybreak, sky should start to clear. Sunshine tomorrow, a beautiful day. Breezy, milder up around the mid-40s. Could have some sun for the first part of Thursday, but then rain later in the day. It's down to 30 degrees now in Boston at 459 i'm healthcare reporter martha biebinger and this is 90.9 wbur fm boston 92.7 wbua tisbury and 89.1 wbuh brewster listen anytime with our app or at wbur.org wbur boston's npr news station search and rescue efforts are still underway after an earthquake devastated turkey and syria we'll hear about conditions on the ground
38: I'm angry that uh, there were no state agencies there. I'm angry that people were left alone. It's
0: Tuesday, February 7th, and this is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, social media posts are offering a look at the aftermath of the deadly earthquake that hit Syria. What to expect from President Biden's State of the Union address tonight. And today Microsoft announced that its powerful artificial intelligence tool ChatGPT will now be used in its search service Bing. Google unveiled its own AI tool, a competitor to ChatGPT, roughly 24 hours before. These stories and the numbers from Wall Street. The street was up today. Coming up, it's 5:01. News headlines are next.
35: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is expected to lay out a reassuring vision of the nation's overall condition tonight during his annual State of the Union address before a joint session of Congress. NPR's Franco Ordonez says expectations are the president will focus on the strong jobs market.
32: Biden is going to talk about Um, You know, his efforts with the infrastructure plan to create jobs. I think you're going to hear him talk about the big numbers that came out just last week uh, that showed unemployment at historic lows, 3.4 percent, which was the lowest in decades. But look, you know, the people, a lot of Americans just don't feel it. You know, despite some of that positive economic data. I mean, they're still concerned about inflation. They're still concerned about interest rates.
35: NPR's Franco Ordonez the president also likely to try to overcome pessimism over a divided government and a looming showdown over the federal debt limit. Russia is warning the U.S. it may expel American diplomats over the U.S. embassy's criticism of the war in Ukraine. From Moscow NPR's Charles Mainz has more.
7: Russia's foreign ministry served notice to American Ambassador Lynn Tracy just two weeks into her new post accusing the embassy of maliciously spreading inappropriate statements about the Russian leadership and false information about Russia's armed forces online. The ministry warned that U.S. diplomats caught conducting, quote, subversive activities through the embassy's social media accounts would be expelled. Russia has officially banned any information that contradicts the government line in Ukraine, including under a fake news law that carries a maximum sentence of 15 years in prison. The U.S. Embassy currently runs several social media accounts where it shares U.S. policy positions in support of Ukraine and openly criticizes the Russian war effort. Charles Baines, NPR News. Moscow.
35: Rescue teams in Turkey and Syria searching for victims following this week's massive earthquake there are facing freezing temperatures. The death toll for magnitude 7.8 quake now rising to at least 7,200. Microsoft has announced a new version of its Bing search engine powered by artificial intelligence. NPR's Bobby Allen has more.
6: Microsoft executives gathered reporters to its headquarters to show off a new version of Bing powered by the hit AI tool ChatGPT. In demonstrations, executives showed how users can ask it direct questions about, say, creating a five-day itinerary for a trip to Mexico. And it instantly makes it for you. Microsoft is staking its future on the success of new AI tools like ChatGPT. CEO Satya Nadella said it's a new day for search and that the race is on. It was an apparent nod to the elephant in the room, which is Google. The search giant controls around 90 percent of the market and has recently announced its own AI-powered search engine. Bobby Allen, NPR News, Redmond, Washington.
35: On Wall Street, the Dow was up 265 points. The Nasdaq closed up 226 points. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Duxbury woman accused of killing her three children will remain in the hospital as she awaits trial. Lindsay Clancy was arraigned from her hospital room on murder charges today. She appeared on a large television screen for the proceedings that were held in Plymouth District Court. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more.
8: The 32-year-old Clancy was wearing a mask and did not express emotion. Prosecutors say she planned the murders of her three children and was coherent and well-functioning up until their deaths on January 24th. But Clancy's attorney, Kevin Reddington, said his client was on several psychiatric medications.
24: The woman
13: before you, who was a beautiful person, was thoroughly destroyed
8: by
14: these medications.
8: Another court hearing is scheduled in May. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. The MBTA hopes to resume redline service from
0: Alewife Station in Cambridge this week. The station and its parking garage have been closed since Saturday when a car rammed a barrier on the roof of the garage. It sent concrete and debris into the station. Today, the T said it hopes to open a temporary entrance to the station this week. The parking garage at Alewife will partially reopen tomorrow, and shuttle buses will continue to replace trains between Alewife and Davis Station until uh, the Alewife Station reopens. Mount Holyoke College in South Hadley has named its next leader. Danielle Wren Hawley will take over as president in July. She is currently dean of the Howard University School of Law. She'll become Mount Holyoke's first president permanent black female leader and is 20th president. She's also a graduate of Yale University and Harvard Law School. She takes over for interim president, Beverly Danielle Tatum. She has held the job since last summer when Sonia Stevens left to become president of the American University of Paris. And Boston Mayor Michelle Wu wants to spruce up the neighborhood signs you see around the city that welcome people to different communities. She's inviting artists to submit up to three proposals to redesign them. Artists have to live or work in Boston and submissions have to be received by March 3rd. Chosen artists will receive $1,000 in a stipend for their work. You can apply on the City of Boston website. 30 degrees now in the Boston area after a nice day. Could have some slick weather overnight tonight, especially around areas in Suffolk and Norfolk counties and then temperatures right about the 30-degree mark for tomorrow, reaching the mid-40s with lots of sunshine during the day. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 5.07.
18: WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at MelvilleTrust.org.
34: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Los Angeles.
9: And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. President Biden will give the annual State of the Union address before Congress tonight. This year's speech comes as Biden faces a divided Congress while also planning his re-election run. NPR White House correspondent Asma Khalid and NPR political correspondent Susan Davis are here in the studio with a preview good to have you here. It's great to be here. Asma, to start with, what's the president likely to focus on tonight? Uh,
3: Well, a few things. I mean, we're certainly going to see and hear him give a bit of a a victory lap, which he's been on, right, touting his legislative accomplishments and the economic progress the country's made during his first two years uh, in the White House. But I will say, Ari, I mean, I think it's important and we're going to see him sort of strike this delicate balance because while there are certainly economic gains, you know, many of us go out to the grocery store still realize that prices are higher than they were before the pandemic. Um, You know, Biden is also going to be trying to emphasize some of the policies that he wants to, you know, implement over the next two years. A White House official told me that that includes doing more on gun violence, um, doing more on having some sort of police reform. Um, You know, it's important to know that Tyree Nichols' mom and stepdad are going to be special guests joining the First Lady tonight. And and Tyree Nichols, remember, is the young man who died recently after being beaten by police in Memphis. Uh, You know, I will say collectively, the president does want to strike this optimistic tone. He wants to talk about issues where he thinks both members... uh, Members of both parties can actually get something done on, find common ground. But at the same time, this speech is about drawing lines in the sand and creating, you know, some contrast with Republicans.
9: And Sue, this is the first address to Congress that Biden is going to give without the health protocols that were in place all through the pandemic. What's it going to be like tonight?
4: No masks, no testing requirements, no social distancing. I mean, part of this is a a reflection of the reality of Republicans taking over the House. One of the first things the new majority did was eliminate the final COVID-19 protocols. They opened the building back up to tours. Uh, You know, Republicans have been putting pressure on the president to end the national emergency sooner than he'd like. They passed a bill just last week to do so immediately. The president said he'd veto that bill, but it did provoke the White House to say that they would be ending the national emergency in May. And one thing I'm curious to to listen for tonight is how Biden frames the chapter that the country is at when it comes to the COVID-19 pandemic and whether he talks about it as sort of mission accomplished is something of the past.
9: Asma mentioned a couple of the guests. I know there's a long list at the White House released. Anybody in particular you're looking to?
4: I think the focus on police reform, especially for members of the Congressional Black Caucus, is interesting. The Tyree Nichols mm-hmm. family was an invitation on behalf of the head of the CBC. Uh, the the father of Michael Brown, the teenager who was shot in 2014 in Ferguson, Missouri, that was a big moment in the Black Lives Matter movement. His father will be there mm-hmm. at the invitation of Cory Bush, a Democrat from the state. Um, also a focus on gun violence. Uh, several Two of the notable guests are Brandon Say, he's a 26-year-old man who confronted the shooter in the recent Monterey Park shooting in California. And also Richard Fierro, he was the military vet who helped stop the gunmen at Club Q in Colorado Springs last November. Uh, also another push that I think the White House shares in with Democrats in Congress is for additional gun legislation, although obviously that seems quite unlikely in divided government. Awesome. And if
3: I can chime in here, and another yeah. guest that we know that's going to be um, sitting in the First Lady's box is the Ukraine ambassador to the United States. Mm. And that's the second year in a row that that ambassador will be there. And it speaks to the fact that the president is expected to speak tonight about the ongoing war in Ukraine and the United States support for that effort.
9: How much of this is going to look towards the 2024 presidential election and a re-election campaign that Biden has not officially announced? Mm -hmm.
3: Well, I will say it is the underlying subtext, uh, I think, in everything here. I mean, a White House official told me that the president intends to discuss how we have to, quote, finish the job, which I Mm. thought was really interesting language. (laughs) Like Uh, (laughs) with another four
9: years, that kind of finish the job. I mean, the
3: president, as you point out, has stated that it's his intention to run. He has not officially made that declaration. But, you know, this is arguably going to be the biggest biggest audience of the year that he has. And so uh, I think, you know, former speechwriters I've spoken with say that he needs to quiet some of the concerns that people have about him. Uh, His approval rating has remained underwater. And a recent Washington Post ABC poll shows that even a majority of Democrats, um, you know, would prefer someone else to be their party's nominee. There are, Mm. I think, lingering questions about his age. But there's also, I think, a desire for for Democrats and broadly for this White House to convey some of the achievements that they have made this year. You see that not really trans over with the public. Uh, The president's certainly going to try to do that. And he's also going to try to uh, emphasize contrast. And when you talk about emphasizing contrast, that, again, uh, is about, I think, looking forward.
9: Big contrast on the issue of the debt ceiling. Uh, Sue, he's undoubtedly going to address that tonight as Speaker McCarthy tries to extract a spending cut agreement in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. What's the status of those
4: talks? Speaker McCarthy gave a, what they called a pre to the State of the Union last night, and, in which he framed the national debt, which is now about just over $31 trillion, in his words, the greatest threat to the future of the country. So that's the way that they've been framing it. But Republicans are really kind of dragging Biden and Democrats in the negotiating table here. Democrats' position is pretty simple. Just raise the debt ceiling. We, we don't think we should negotiate over this because the risks of the default are too great.
9: As they did during the Trump administration.
4: Exactly. And, and the challenge for Republicans here is they want spending cuts, but they haven't articulated exactly what they want to cut. What McCarthy has done is taken things off the table. He said this week, we won't cut Social Security and Medicare. We don't want to cut the Pentagon. We don't want to cut any benefits for veterans. It's a pretty small pot of the pile. So uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Majority Leader today, said, look, you want to talk about spending cuts? Show us what you think you can cut that's left over there that you can balance the budget on. And we don't have an answer to that question yet.
9: NPR's Susan Davis and Asma Khalid, thank you both.
4: You're welcome. My pleasure.
34: Search and rescue efforts are still underway in southeastern Turkey and northern Syria after a powerful earthquake and... Multiple aftershocks devastated the region, killing thousands of people. One of the hardest hit areas is the province of Hatay in southern Turkey. Gonul Tol is there. She is normally based in Washington, where she is the director of the Turkey Program at the Middle East Institute. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us during this incredibly difficult time.
38: Thanks for having me.
34: I first just want to ask you, are you okay? Where were you when the earthquake hit?
38: I was a few hours from Hatay. And I was in Mersin with my family, with my sister and her four-year-old daughter, uh, where we also felt the earthquake. It was it hit pretty uh, strongly in, uh, in Mersin as well.
34: And how was your family in the region doing at the moment?
38: Um, unfortunately, we lost relatives um, who were um, trapped uh, oh, under the rubbles. Um, so we waited for hours. Um, we, we lost many of them. I'm so, so sorry. Thank you. Can you just
34: describe for us right now what it looks like where you are when you step out and you go outside? Can you just paint me a picture?
38: It looks like a war zone. Um, There are rubbles everywhere, almost um, every other building collapsed, people crying. There are dead bodies on the streets, um, people screaming for help. It's, uh, it's a tragedy, really. And the city that I've known and loved for, for many years is, is not there anymore.
34: Well, what kind of response are you seeing so far from authorities on the ground, either local authorities, national authorities?
38: Uh, well well nothing um i was um turkey was hit by another very powerful earthquake in 1999 and i was there at the time i was a student um in college um and that was in northwestern uh, Turkey. It was equally devastating. Uh, and at the time, uh, newspapers that are now uh, pro-government uh, criticized the state agency's uh, slow response. Uh, it's um, their inefficiency in delivering aid and not uh, being responsive to the needs of people. Um, and the ruling AKP came to power after that uh, that tragedy in 2002. And um, President Erdogan's AKP Uh, came to power basically promising a more efficient governance, a government that was in uh, tune with the demands and and needs of the people. Um, And he also legitimized um, switching the country's parliamentary system to an all-powerful presidential system without any checks and balances by saying uh, this would make uh, responding to crises and solving countries' problems faster. Unfortunately, that was not what I saw in Hattai yesterday.
34: Hmm. Well, speaking of President Erdogan, he has declared a three-month state of emergency in the country. What do you make of that declaration, given the amount, the extent of damage that you are personally seeing right now?
38: Well, I don't think that response is going to solve the problems. He's under a lot of criticism right now, because from what I saw in Hatay, there were no government agencies, there were no civil society organizations, no rescue workers on the ground. Basically, people were trying to dig out loved ones trapped under the rubble with, with bare hands. And I think that's the most striking picture of Erdogan's New Turkey, where institutions are not there anymore, Uh, he destroyed institutions and he did not put um, anything in their place. And I think that was the the picture that I saw. And that was the picture thousands of victims saw on the first uh, day of this tragedy.
34: If you could speak directly to the president right now, President Erdogan, tell me what you would say.
38: I'm angry. I'm angry um, that people died. I'm angry that uh, there were no state agencies there. I'm angry that people were, people were left alone um, and uh, earthquakes happen. But I think um, those people did not have to die if uh, Erdogan and his government had done more.
34: Gonul Tol is the director of the Turkey program at the Middle East Institute. She was speaking to us from Hatay province, one of the area's hardest hit in Turkey. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us, Gonul. And again, I am so deeply sorry for your loss.
38: Thanks for having me.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia leave senior citizens at risk for financial mismanagement and exploitation, and it falls on families to monitor the risk. That story coming up in about three minutes, and later, how to exercise in the cold. A solid upswing for stocks today. The Dow rose more than three-quarters of a percent, 266 points, to close at 34,157. S&P gained more than one and a quarter percent to finish at 4,164. The Nasdaq picked up almost two percent to end the day at 12,114. Also in business news, food prices in the city of Boston saw a jump at the end of last year. The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reports food eaten at home in greater Boston cost almost 12.5 percent more than a year ago. Restaurant prices were up just under 11 percent. Those increases were steeper than the national average in both categories. It's 519.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by downtown Boston's new Third Space pop-up art gallery, live performances, lunch hangout, and Thursday night events. More at downtownboston.org slash thirdspace.
1: Sending Winston Flowers from WBUR supports your source for news.
0: See all our choices and send yours today to save 10%. Visit wbur.org. Parts of the region could have some rain and sleet this evening, making things pretty slick. By tomorrow morning, we should have clearing skies with sunshine due for pretty much the whole day. Tomorrow should be breezy and milder, up around 46 degrees for a high. 30 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from your part-time controller specializing in nonprofit accounting, your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And
10: I'm Juana Summers. Today, for the third time, tens of thousands of workers walked off the job and onto the streets of France. They're protesting President Emmanuel Macron's plans to overhaul the pension system. Most notably, his plans to raise the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64, which the government says is necessary to keep the system solvent.
39: NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports that opposition is growing. There's not just the battle in the street now. There's also a full-fledged confrontation in the French Parliament as debate over the retirement reform bill got underway this week. Some 20,000 amendments have been attached as opponents try to derail it. The debate is launching new political stars from the far left. Like French Ivoirienne, former hotel janitor Rachel Keké, who said no one has the right to cut down the little people who keep France going. Then there's enigmatic 22-year-old parliamentarian Louis Boyard, who is inspiring students to block their schools and join protests in the streets. Polls show about two-thirds of the French are against the measure. Those vehemently opposed have doubled from 26 to 42 percent since last fall. People feel the retirement overhaul puts the burden of fixing the system on those who toil in difficult jobs, and they say there's more to life than work. Macron has so far refused to budge on making the French work longer. Unions have vowed to keep up the pressure with more strikes and protests to come. Eleanor Beardsley in Pierre News, Paris.
9: By 2030, an estimated 9 million Americans will be living with some sort of dementia. They'll need health care and social support and also consumer financial protections. That's because people with dementia are at high risk for losing control of their money. As Sarah Bowden at WESA in Pittsburgh explains, these problems can also be an early symptom of illness.
29: Angela Reynolds pulls out faded photos of her childhood home in New Haven, Connecticut.
4: I don't know if you can tell here, but the blinds right there, they go out to a deck that she had built onto the house.
29: This house was a point of family pride. When her mom bought it for $20,000 in 1966, she became one of the first Black homeowners in that part of town.
4: So this should have been a legacy for so many different reasons.
29: But her family no longer owns this house. And Reynolds blames the ravages of Alzheimer's because her mom began to forget to pay the mortgage.
0: And
4: we lost
29: it. Reynolds had been living in another state and thought her mom was doing fine. By the time she stepped in, it was too late to stop the foreclosure. Her mom had been withdrawing large amounts of cash, but wasn't paying her bills. And for some reason, she had refinanced the mortgage to a much higher interest rate. Reynolds thinks her mom might have been exploited but there's no way to know. Dementia specialists say money problems can be one of the first signs of trouble. Robin Hilzebeck is a neuropsychologist at the UT Austin Dell Medical School.
15: It's not uncommon for the first sign is, you know, my loved one was scammed out of several hundred or thousands of dollars. Tilzebeck says errors in
29: money management can help reveal the kind of dementia a person has. For example, when it comes to the leading cause of dementia, Alzheimer's disease. That's the one where it's really rapid forgetting. Including that they need to pay their bills. Lewy body dementia creates fluctuating cognition. So in the morning, a person might be perfectly capable of writing a check.
15: Later in the day, they may not be able to
29: do it. Someone with vascular dementia can have issues with their processing speed, so it's easier to confuse them and defraud them. And frontal temporal
15: dementia creates
29: behavior changes.
15: They're disinhibited impulsive. They do
29: things like you would never, ever have thought they would do before.
15: And their families
29: come in and say, oh, my gosh. Research shows how financial issues are both caused by and sometimes predictive of dementia. One study of some 81,000 Medicare recipients found that people with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias started to develop poor credit up to six years before their diagnosis. At first, dementia can be pernicious. Early signs are often subtle and hard to recognize. Sharon Gwyn, who lives in Pittsburgh, was at the grocery store when she got an early clue that something was wrong with her husband. Her credit card was declined.
33: And I was like, no, 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 there's thousands of dollars in that account.
29: Initially, Sharon thought her identity had been stolen. What actually happened was worse. The night before, her husband of 28 years, Richard, had racked up a $3,000 tab in a Pittsburgh bar, buying rounds for strangers. So I was completely crushed. Richard was showing the first signs of Louis body dementia. Before he got sick, Sharon says her husband had been the kind of guy who only bought used cars, which he kept until they rusted apart. At the time of the bar incident, Richard was seemingly normal, except for money.
33: He drove for years after his financial awareness was gone.
29: Neurologists say someone with early-stage dementia may seem perfectly functional in some areas of daily living, while other aspects, such as finances, spin out of control. These people are frequent targets of scams or outright theft, sometimes by strangers, sometimes by family members. Now Sharon is a widow, but she still worries about losing her savings if she gets dementia.
33: I do not want my children to be responsible for taking care of me. What I have, I want my money to be spent for my care, and I don't want to burden them.
29: Sharon pays a monthly fee for a service that monitors for unusual spending, like huge bar tabs, across all of her accounts, and she's designated power of attorney to her eldest daughter. Unlike Sharon, a lot of people are not reckoning with the possibility that they could one day develop dementia. Matt Lundquist specializes in financial family therapy.
14: What we discover in being close to people
13: who are struggling with something like dementia is the ways that money can represent stability, control, power, autonomy, and safety.
29: Some people may assume they don't need to talk to their family about money because their bank or brokerage firm is looking out for them. But advocates say the financial industry could be doing a lot more. In 2016, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau made a set of recommendations for companies to better protect the wealth of seniors. These included employee training and tweaks to fraud detection systems. But Naomi Karp, who worked at the bureau at that time, says little was done.
38: We would have meetings repeatedly with some of the largest banks and they gave a lot of lip service to these issues, but when it came right down to it, change is very,
29: very slow. There's at least one regulation that seems to help. Brokerage firms are required to try to get clients to name so-called trusted contacts. The contact gets alerted if something concerning is going on with their loved one's money. But at most financial institutions, this safeguard is limited to brokerage accounts. It's not offered for checking and savings accounts. For Angela Reynolds, she wishes the bank had alerted her that her mom had stopped paying the mortgage on the family house in New Haven.
4: I fully believe that they noticed signs, but there was nothing in place at that time.
29: Today, that home is owned by U.S. Bank. It's valued at more than $200,000. That's money Reynolds could have used to pay for her mother's care. For NPR News, I'm Sarah Bowden in Pittsburgh.
9: Support for this report came from the Commonwealth Fund, the Association of Healthcare Journalists, and Kaiser Health News.
0: This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Could be slick in parts of the area tonight with sleet and rain up until about 2 in the morning. Temperatures about 30 degrees overnight. Then a change in the weather tomorrow. Sunny skies, milder temperatures in the mid-40s. Celtics are off until tomorrow night. The Bruins are off until Saturday. But there is hockey in the city. The Women's College Beanpot Hockey Tournament is now underway. In the game going on right now at the Garden, Northeastern is leading Boston University 2-1 to one after the second period. And tonight is 730. It's Harvard versus Boston College. You can hear the State of the Union address tonight at nine o'clock here on WBUR and in English and Spanish at WBUR.org. And if you miss it, wake up tomorrow with us for highlights, reactions, and analysis from NPR. 30 degrees now in Boston. Thanks for being with us this evening. This is 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com
40: Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR creates stories that bring joy to your life. I'm Rupa Chanoi. Send your gift nearly anywhere in New England, and your support will bring you stories you won't hear anywhere else. Order now to save 10% on all four choices, including a 12-month Flower of the Month subscription that begins with a rose arrangement on Valentine's Day. Visit WBUR.org.
16: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The race to find survivors continues as teams of rescuers throughout southern Turkey and northern Syria dig through the remains of buildings flattened by a magnitude 7.8 earthquake that has so far killed more than 7,000 people. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports from Istanbul.
5: Turkey estimates more than 8,000 people have been rescued alive from the rubble of thousands of buildings that collapsed from the initial quake and its hundreds of aftershocks but rescue crews are struggling against freezing temperatures and snow to rescue those who are still trapped, trying to reach them before they succumb to their injuries or hypothermia. The situation in northwest Syria in the midst of a civil war is more dire. As
16: Rob mentioned, a series of aftershocks have caused more widespread damage, adding more misery to Syria's long civil war and its refugee crisis. In Memphis, Tennessee, seven more members of the police department there are Facing internal investigations tied to the violent arrest of Tyree Nichols, he died three days after officers are shown on camera beating him. From member station WKNO, Katie Reardon reports.
29: Six officers have already been dismissed from the police force, including five who face second-degree murder charges for the death of Nichols. The newest round of internal investigations for seven additional personnel is still ongoing, says Jennifer Sink, the chief legal officer for the city of Memphis.
15: Everyone involved in this is being uh, reviewed, and so it doesn't necessarily mean an officer was on the scene in order to be under investigation, potentially receive some kind of disciplinary hearing.
38: Sink says there's
29: no date yet set for possible discipline hearings. The city also intends to release more audio and video recordings related to Nichols' arrest once internal investigations are complete. For NPR News, I'm Katie Reardon in Memphis.
16: On Wall Street, stocks ended higher across the board today. The Dow up three-quarters of a percent. This is NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston is creating a reparations task force. It will study the lasting effects of slavery in the city and determine ways Boston could address the harm. As WBUR's Walter Ruthman reports, Boston is one of the largest cities in the country to consider reparations for descendants of people who were enslaved.
6: Mayor Michelle Wu gathered with community leaders at Beacon Hill's historic African Meeting House to introduce the new 10-person task force the mayor urged them to be creative and ambitious.
40: There is no statute of limitations on addressing wrongs that we have the
20: ability to make right.
6: Task Force Chair Joseph Feaster compared the country's broken promises to formerly enslaved people to an unpaid mortgage loan. I have never seen a lender
18: say that the debt is no longer owed. They say that the estate
1: is responsible for paying that debt, and that's what we're talking about
6: here with this committee. The task force expects to complete its report over the next two years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Withman.
0: Former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh is expected to leave his post as Secretary of the U.S. Department of Labor. Two people familiar say Walsh will leave to become the Executive Director of the National Hockey League's Players Association. The union has been searching for a leader since last year to succeed the current Director, Donald Fear. Congresswoman Anna Presley is bringing a Mattapan early educator to tonight's State of the Union address in Washington, D.C. Presley says she chose Cape Verdean immigrant and Mother Jacqueline Sanchez to highlight the importance of of child care providers.
4: Uh, that we come together to affirm that we value the labor of our educators and we value their lives too. Our babies matter, our mamas matter.
0: Presley says Americans should have realized the importance of these workers well before the pandemic hit. You can hear the State of the Union address tonight at 9 o'clock on WBUR, and at WBUR.org, you can hear the address in English or Spanish. The MBTA is getting $6.5 million to improve its ferry dock in Hingham. It's the largest award this year from the Federal Transit Administration's Passenger Ferry Grant Program. The money will be used to modernize the dock, make it safer, and improve accessibility. Construction is expected to begin next year. The T says the dock served more than a half million passengers annually prior to the pandemic. We could have snow and sleet. Temperatures just below freezing tonight until about 2 in the morning. Some strong winds as well. Then tomorrow turning sunny, a lot milder up in the mid-40s. 30 degrees now in Boston at 535.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the candidate's search process. Businesses attract screen and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at indeed.com slash NPR. And from Proctor and Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at vicks.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. It's All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And
9: I'm Ari Shapiro. Remember Bing? Before you Google it, it's the search engine that Microsoft released more than a decade ago. And for most of that time, it's been overshadowed by Google. Well, today, Microsoft announced it's overhauling Bing to incorporate artificial intelligence. Executives hope that'll help it unseat Google and become the top search engine of the future. Bobby Allen was there for the big announcement at Microsoft's headquarters. And Bobby, tell us more about what you learned today.
6: Yeah, we learned that Microsoft is staking its future on AI and, you know, the first real test of that will be with its search engine Bing. Soon, people who use Bing will be able to use a uh, tool that's sort of like talking to a real human. It's a service powered by chat GPT That's the chatbot that's really taking the internet by storm in recent months um, executive showed off how this would work okay So say you want to plan a, f- a five-day vacation to Mexico with the new ser with the new service, right? You can instantly have a five-day itinerary for your trip uh, Want to research a Japanese poet uh, this AI tool not only gives you basic information But analyzes multiple sources at once in a box that appears to the to the right of, of your search with annotations and links. You know, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella called this a new day for search, and he said the race is on.
9: But Google has the lead in this race, so how much of a threat is this to them, really?
6: Yeah, this really represents a, a serious threat to Google, I think. And in fact, inside the company, executives have launched an effort dubbed Code Red, specifically aimed at countering the popularity of ChatGPT. And just yesterday, we saw Google announced an AI-powered search engine called Bard that it hopes will rival Microsoft's effort. Now, look, it is going to take a lot to unseat Google. About you know, 90% of online searches are Google searches. They are the entrenched incumbent here. But they're also lagging behind when it comes to publicly available AI tool. So some analysts say Microsoft being out front here could start really chipping away at at Google's dominance. Now, worth pointing out that Microsoft did not invent ChatGPT, right? A San Francisco research lab known as OpenAI developed it, but uh, then Microsoft got really excited about it and has been investing billions. Uh, So now the two companies, OpenAI and Microsoft, are just really intertwined right now.
9: So if the future of internet search is tied to AI, what pitfalls does that bring? What are the risks?
6: Yeah, there are a lot of risks, Ari. I mean, anyone who has used ChatGPT has run up against the limitations pretty quickly, right? When you ask it a question, it can do what's known as hallucinating or confidently stating things that are just straight up made up. That's obviously concerning. And if AI is the new engine behind how people search the internet, you could just imagine how things could go sideways pretty fast, especially when you're looking up information about subjects rife with misinformation, like elections, vaccines, violent encounters with law enforcement, and so on. You know, after the executives gave us presentations, I and other reporters were allowed to try out the new Bing with Microsoft Project Managers, and I was standing there looking at a computer screen, and I said to the Project Manager, okay, well, what if I asked it something obviously untrue, right, if the 2020 election was stolen? And the project manager demurred and said, no, we're not ready to show how it handles what she called sensitive questions. So, to me, Ari, that said everything, right? Microsoft is making this big announcement today about its AI search engine, but it's also not done with its guardrails. And how good those guardrails are, I think, will be a pretty big factor in, in just how successful an AI-powered Bing is. And Pierre's Bobby Allen, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ari.
20: Support for All Tech Considered comes from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. Indonesia
10: is increasingly held up as an example of an emerging economy that is aggressively addressing climate change. The country recently signed a highly publicized international deal to transition away from coal and toward renewable energy. The hope is the deal could be a model for other countries, but NPR's Julia Simon says in Indonesia, it looks like a different story.
40: Not far from the white sand beaches of Kalimantan, the Indonesian government is building a giant park for green manufacturing. Indonesian officials are courting Elon Musk and Tesla to make EV batteries there.
22: Akan kita garap mulai bulan ini.
40: The Indonesian president, kita mulai Joko Widodo, said in a speech, the green park will be the biggest in the world and will run green. on renewable Actually, energy.
31: Actually, the idea is to build green
6: industrial park using hydropower.
40: Rahmat Kaimuddin is a deputy minister for the Indonesian government. He says building the hydropower will take a while.
6: It will take eight to ten years to be to do that in full.
40: So for now, the Green Park plans to build brand new coal plants. Running green tech factories on new coal captures Indonesia's often contradictory approach to climate change. Now those inconsistencies are raising doubts about a new $20 billion deal to get the country off coal. Last fall, President Biden and other world leaders pledged the money as a first step to accelerate Indonesia's transition from coal to renewable energy. In Indonesia, some energy watchers worry this deal may be omongkosong. Empty talk. You're paying this country to shut down some coal power plant while also still building new ones? That just, it just doesn't make sense. Anisa Suharsono is an analyst at the International Institute for Sustainable Development. Indonesia gets about 60 percent of its electricity from coal. The idea is the money could help the country shut down coal plants ahead of schedule. But Suharsono says it's unclear how that will happen. Indonesia recently made a new regulation that says no new coal, except for coal plants already in the pipeline and for ones attached to new industrial parks, like the so-called Green Park.
27: They keep saying about no new coal, no new coal, no new coal. It's like they
40: put that cost there to give a loophole. And there are questions about renewables. The deal has a goal of doubling Indonesia's renewable power in seven years. But NPR spoke to renewable executives and investors who worry the country won't get rid of roadblocks for solar and wind. Like a government price cap that keeps coal prices so low that renewables struggle to make money. Here's Fabi Tomiwa of the Institute for Essential Services Reform.
12: It makes renewable actually very, very difficult to compete
22: because they cannot compete in the situation where coal is actually subsidized
40: there are also big potential conflicts of interest. Some of Indonesia's most prominent politicians have ties to coal. The minister who's running the deal to get off coal has coal assets himself. Minister Luhut Banjaitan says in an email to NPR that transparency and accountability are critical components of Indonesia's decarbonization efforts. His deputy, Kaimudin, agrees.
6: He's been very, very supportive of uh, this decarbonization and Never once <laughs> he mentioned about, like, you know, what about my asset or whatever.
40: As Indonesia wraps up the first stage of the deal, energy analysts hope the government starts releasing more details to the public, like criteria around which coal plants get shut down and which new ones get built. For now, Suharsono says her eyes are on the international banks that continue to finance new Indonesian coal plants. So. I think that's probably a a homer for the international community. It's just if you want to send a message, you want us to get, get our vote, stop funding us. NPR sent questions about the deal to John Kerry, U.S. Special Envoy for Climate. He sent in an email, Indonesia made these commitments not only to combat the climate crisis, but also to transform and grow their economy. Julia Simon, NPR News.
9: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The freezing temperatures across much of the country may not be beckoning you to exercise outside, but with a little smart wardrobe strategy, you can still get in a great run or hike on an icy day and do it safely. For LifeKit, NPR's Wynn Davis deconstructs the layers of wintertime workout clothes you'll need to stay dry and warm as you sweat outdoors.
37: When winter comes around, I really struggle with getting outside to get my runs in. But that's definitely not the case for everyone.
41: Unpopular opinion, I love running in the cold. It is my absolute favorite time of year.
37: That's Allison Mariella Desir. She's a mother, an athlete, an activist, and the author of the book Running While Black. Her philosophy comes down to the fact that when you start moving, you're going to warm up.
41: Because when you're moving, 50 degrees... It will feel like seventy degrees by the time you get moving.
37: Let's start out with the basics of what you might need for, say, a fifty degree day, which to some, you know, might not be all that cold.
41: So the air is crisp, but the sun is peeking out. You, I would wear, and bear with me now. I would wear shorts, uh, a short, a uh, short sleeve shirt that is a wicking material, and then a long sleeve shirt over that. And I would start out very cold. But very quickly, that long sleeve shirt would come off and I would tie it around my waist and I would be sweating.
37: The most important thing here is that the layer closest to your skin is a moisture wicking material. That's going to help keep you dry and your body temperature where it needs to be. Look for a synthetic fiber here like polyester or nylon or a wool blend. And avoid cotton because it will get wet and stay wet. Now, let's say it's around freezing temperatures. You want to add more layers here.
41: I would wear fleece line tights, a wicking short sleeve shirt. Then I would wear a long sleeve shirt over that. And I would definitely wear a jacket, a running jacket.
37: A hat, headband, and gloves come in handy, too. Now, if it's really cold out, I'm talking like 30 or below, you should think about adding protection for your face, like a neck gaiter. You also want to make sure you have a good pair of wool socks to keep your feet warm and dry. All of these layers that you're building are going to help protect you from conditions like frostbite and hypothermia.
21: Frostbite is an injury to the body that's caused by freezing, And what happens is when it's cold, your blood flow gets concentrated in your body's core and it leaves other areas like your hands, your feet, your head, your ears, and that becomes vulnerable to frostbite.
37: That's Dr. Kaleche Okorha of the Mayo Clinic. Cold skin and a prickling feeling are the beginning symptoms of frostbite. When it starts to get worse, you might see discoloration of the skin or feel some numbness. Now, when it comes to hypothermia, that's when you have an abnormally low body temperature.
21: So when you're exposed to cold temperatures, your body begins to lose heat faster than it can be produced. And so exercising in cold or rainy weather can increase your risk of hypothermia. Some signs and symptoms of hypothermia are things like intense shivering, slurred speech, loss of coordination, or even fatigue.
37: If you recognize signs of either of these, you need to get inside as soon as possible and warm up slowly. The good news is, though, that dressing appropriately can help prevent both of these from happening. And maybe you'll end up loving the cold as much as Desire does.
41: I just love it. I love the cool air on my face. I love the feeling of being one of the only people out there. I love the clothing. I love layers. Literally everything. For NPR News,
37: I'm Wynne Davis.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: Join us tonight at nine o'clock on WBUR as President Biden gives his annual State of the Union address before a deeply divided Congress. Listen live at nine on the radio or hear it in English or Spanish at WBUR.org. We could have a wintry mix tonight. Rain and sleet up until about two in the morning. Should be especially slick from Boston south to Foxborough. Lows tonight just below freezing. Tomorrow, partly sunny in the morning, then mostly sunny for the bulk of the day. Windy and milder, rising to the mid-40s. Thursday, The clouds should move back in, maybe rain later in the afternoon, still up around 45 degrees. WBR's midday host, Jack Lapieres, is hanging up his headphones to join the circus, for real. On our podcast, The Common, we catch up with Jack, also known as Jack Z. Whipper, to take a look back at his career at WBR and his rise as a TikTok sensation, thanks to his whipping talents. Follow The Common wherever you get your podcasts. And Jack, we will miss you. Whip it good.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums. Open to everyone. Explore three floors of art spanning the centuries, free Sundays, and new museums at night events, harvardartmuseums.org.
19: Hello, this is Simone Rios. I'm a reporter here at WBUR, and this is my daughter, Gabriella.
34: No On
19: New Year's Eve, Gabby showed up unexpectedly to my performance in Boston's South End, I'm also a musician, and it was one of my proudest moments as a dad to play music with my daughter. Gabby agreed to get up on stage with me and sing this beautiful Uruguayan song called Inoportuna. On this Valentine's Day, I want to share my story of love and music with our WBUR family. Whether it's with our voices or with a bouquet of roses from Winston Flowers, this is the time when we can express our love for the people closest to us. And if you do choose to send flowers this Valentine's Day, consider sending them from WBUR to support our journalism and lift all our voices. Check out the offerings at
9: WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro.
10: And I'm Juana Summers. Black women enjoy taking part in outdoor and nature activities just as much as anyone else. But that's not the typical image you see in magazines and in ads. Groups like Outdoorsy Black Women and Black Packers are working to change that narrative. Cody Short from member station WBHM in Birmingham has more. A group
17: of women met at Red Mountain Park in Birmingham, Alabama. Before they start their two-mile hike, they stretch. Leaders ask if any of the women have allergies or need inhalers. Then, they hit the trail. So, so how did you find out about outdoorsy black women? I love to have black women to do stuff with, because usually I'm just by myself, you know, in places like this. And um, it's none of my friends or family. I'm, I'm the crazy one, like, oh, adventure you like one. Do, you like to go out? Oh, yeah, they call me crazy. Lakeitha Clark you know, fell into this group when she was approaching her 50th birthday. She wanted to take a trip that would involve a lot of time outside. After looking on Instagram, she came across the group. I found my people, you know, because I, mean, I have other friends, but to have, to have black other Black women. I mean, they don't even have to do everything I like, but to just have the, out, the love for the outdoors in common. Outdoorsy Black Women is a national organization, but Clark started the Birmingham chapter in early 2022. Toyin Ajayi is the actual founder of Outdoorsy Black Women. She started the group in the middle of the pandemic. She had been working remotely for an online magazine since 2011, but always dreamed of trading a stationary life for living in an RV. She made that jump in 2020 and wanted to find other Black women like her. Plus, when racial tensions heightened after the murder of George Floyd, Ajayi wanted to create a safe space for Black women. One thing I recognize is the outdoors can be Um, Experienced different ways by different people, right? And it's going to be different things that people connect with. She says within three months, outdoorsy Black women grew to 1,000 members. The organization has chapters all over the country, including a popular location for outdoor activity, Colorado. That's where Black Packers is located. That's a group started by Patricia Ann Cameron. In 2019, she realized there is a gap in representation and wealth in regard to the outdoors in the Black community. The three top economic um, drivers are beer, cannabis, and the outdoors. Cameron wants Black people to utilize outdoor activity to help change that. She also says that Black people specifically have a different type of relationship with the outdoors due to the history of enslavement. A lot of times it was work and or how we fed our families. So it's not like we didn't go outside. It's just that sometimes out, outdoors was necessary to live and that changes your relationship with the outdoors. Samantha White, a sports studies professor at Manhattanville College, says this isn't new for Black women. She says W.E.B. Du Bois would take his daughter, Yolanda, to a summer camp in New York during the early 20th century. News or stories in magazines such as Ebony, you can find narratives and write-ups about Black women skiing and hiking in the 1970s and the 1980s. Despite that history, White says outdoor activities have always been seen as something that only white people do. When you look at the marketing materials for some outdoor recreation brands, you don't see many black faces, says White. Some of these companies have had trouble imagining their larger audience, or envisioning who uses the trails or who hikes or who kayaks or who canoes. It's a very, very narrow vision of what kind of communities take part in that. And Black people are pushing against that in a real way. Outdoor lifestyle brand REI is recognizing those efforts. They recently formed a partnership with outdoorsy Black women and Black Packers that focuses on creating more diverse communities for outdoor leisure and adventure. This past fall, REI launched a new line of hiking gear intended to be more inclusive of Black people's body shapes. And although it's cold outside, outdoorsy Black women and Black Packers will continue their hikes through the rest of the winter, with each step representing Blackness and the outdoors. For NPR News, I'm Cody Short. The
10: 7.8-magnitude earthquake that hit Turkey on Monday also decimated much of northwest Syria. Between the government and rebel-held regions, it's estimated that at least 1,800 are dead in Syria, with many more injured.
9: This is a part of the world already caught up in a number of crises, including a devastating civil war that's been going for more than a decade. That reality makes it tough to reach people who've been affected by the earthquake, but there are some social media posts that offer a glimpse of the aftermath. Here's a first responder from the volunteer group the Syria Civil Defense, otherwise known as the White Helmets, on Twitter yesterday.
25: Many buildings in different cities and villages in northwest Syria collapsed, destroyed by this earthquake. Our teams responded to to all the sites and the buildings. And still now, many families now are under the rubble.
10: The White Helmets are also sharing videos of their rescue efforts, which have been underway for nearly two days straight. In this video, you see rescuers sawing through steel bars, shoveling crumbled concrete, and digging through rubble in Jindaris north of Aleppo. In another, White Helmets pulled a family, including an infant, alive from the scattered heap of their home, also in Jinderas.
9: This man in Sarakab, Syria, told Al-Hadith Live he lost his entire family. God, please grant me patience. I swear, my back has been broken. My back has been broken is a commonly used phrase in Arabic. It expresses the enormity of losing one's family, one's support system. Here's another survivor echoing that sentiment. This broke our back. I swear it broke our back.
10: Crews continue to pull people from the rubble, but the clock is ticking on the rescue efforts. And with the collapse of so much infrastructure, it can be hard for survivors to find shelter from the frigid winter weather.
9: What's more, the complex political situation and years of war in Syria make it difficult for aid groups to help. White Helmets head Ra'ed Asala spoke with USAID chief Samantha Power earlier today and said international aid has yet to reach them.
10: The catastrophic earthquake in northern Syria and southern Turkey has left many wondering how to help. Here's what to be aware of when donating to aid organizations.
9: First, start with due diligence. Never give to a brand new charity that does not have a track record, says Ruth Messenger, the former head of American Jewish World Service. Charity Navigator has a list of highly rated charities active in earthquake relief. The Center for Disaster Philanthropy can help too.
10: Humanitarian aid experts also advise giving money without conditions because immediate needs change by the hour. They also recommend checking if your proposed charity has people who can help with this emergency.
9: And while giving right away is important, rebuilding will continue for years. There will be plenty of need for aid down the road.
10: These tips on responsible giving come to us from journalist Diane Cole and the Goats and Soda blog on NPR.org.
9: And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
20: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's Rate Comparison Tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. And from Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the 1 in 5 college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Could have snow and sleet tonight until about 2 tomorrow morning. Temperatures just below freezing overnight. Some strong winds around as well. Then tomorrow turning sunny and a lot milder up around the mid 40s should stay there on Thursday. The time is 5:59.
8: We are funded by you our listeners and by Habib and Associates Architects, providing architectural services for projects designed to improve your community. com.
12: I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.
0: As President Biden gives the State of the Union address tonight, his administration is struggling to stem a devastating wave of fentanyl deaths. Coming up, how the opioid crisis keeps evolving in lethal ways, becoming even more of a public health problem. Today is Tuesday, February 7th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, voting officials in Pennsylvania are still reckoning with election misinformation. Voting rights advocates are hoping for more election reforms.
23: Well, you know, we're a purple state,
16: so it makes for a a bit of a contentious conversation at times around democracy.
0: Rescue teams continue to look for survivors in the rubble of the powerful earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria. Families are standing by, hoping for signs of lost loved ones. And Salman Rushdie comes out with another book, even as he recovers from a stabbing attack six months ago. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
35: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Speer. President Biden is preparing to deliver his second State of the Union address tonight since taking office. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports this will also be the first time Biden has addressed Congress since Republicans reclaimed control of the House.
28: President Biden is expected to use his address to make the case for reelection, even though he hasn't yet announced his candidacy. In the days leading up to tonight's speech, the White House has touted the administration's record on job growth, an increase in domestic manufacturing and efforts to boost funding for cancer research. Biden is also likely to underscore the importance of working with Congress in the months ahead, specifically with House Republicans in resolving the ongoing dispute over raising the nation's debt ceiling. At the same time, Biden is expected to make the case that he will not allow the borrowing limit to be used as a bargaining chip in negotiations over government spending. Winsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington.
35: The death toll in Monday's powerful earthquake in Turkey and Syria is now at least 7,700 and continuing to rise. NPR's Jeff Bromfeld explains new satellite imagery is revealing just how extensive the devastation is.
1: Commercial satellites owned by the companies Planet and Maxar captured dozens of collapsed buildings and hundreds of emergency tents springing up in towns across southeastern Turkey. One image showed at least 11 low-rise concrete apartment buildings that had collapsed together in a single section of a small town roughly 25 miles from the epicenter. Poor weather has made it difficult for satellites to fully capture the devastation. The winter weather and aftershocks throughout the region are also hampering rescue efforts. Jeff Brumfield, NPR News.
35: It's difficult days for Bed Bath & Beyond. The retail giant has closed more than 100 stores and is out of money. But as NPR's Stacey Vanek-Smith reports, the company has a new turnaround plan.
0: Bed Bath & Beyond is hoping to borrow its way from the brink of bankruptcy. The home furnishing superstore has already closed more than 100 locations and plans to close about 100 more in the next few weeks. Bed Bath & Beyond announced it will be selling new shares in the company in a last-ditch effort to raise about a billion dollars to pay off outstanding loans and hopefully stay in business it is a risky move. The company will have to convince investors that it is on the right track and has a profitable future. Stacey Vanek-Smith, NPR News.
35: Delta says it plans to boost worker wages by 5 percent. The Atlanta-based airline saying it's upping base pay for ground and flight attendant employees worldwide and also hiking pay by 5 percent for eligible merit employees. Pay hikes effective April 1 come as the airlines seek to deal not only with a shortage of workers but also a faster-than-expected rebound in the travel market. Stocks gained ground today. The Dow was up 265 points. You're listening to NPR.
0: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Brockton Hospital is closed after a fire this morning. The flames broke out in an electrical transformer. Firefighters helped evacuate 160 patients and send them to other medical facilities. Bob Haffey is president of Signature Healthcare, which owns Brockton Hospital.
1: We were able to move all of our patients out of
0: the hospital with zero injuries and zero deaths, which is of utmost importance, obviously. So, The power at the hospital is out. Haffey says firefighters are assessing the damage. There's no word on when the facility will reopen. State senators on Beacon Hill may do away with a rule that limits the Senate president to an eight-year term in office. Details from WBUR's Steve Brown.
7: The rule has been in place since the 1990s, following William Bulger's 18-year reign as Senate President. When the Senate takes up the chamber's rules on Thursday, they'll consider an amendment removing that eight-year limit. Senate Ways and Means Chairman Mike Roderick said in a statement he's offering the amendment since there are no limits on the term of the governor, and he noted the House did away with a similar cap on the term of the Speaker almost 10 years ago. Roderick says there are de facto term limits in place, as any candidate for Senate president must win re-election by their peers. Current Senate President Karen Spilka has had the chamber's top job since July of 2018 and won't hit the eight-year mark for another three years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown.
0: The president of the Massachusetts AFL-CIO, Steve Tolman, says the NHL Players Association will be lucky to have U.S. Labor Secretary and former Boston Mayor Marty Walsh at the helm. Sources knowledgeable of Walsh's plans say that he will soon step down to become the players' union's next executive director. Tolman says Walsh would be a great fit.
14: The interesting and most distinct thing about Marty Walsh is he doesn't just have a union history. He has a legislative history. He has a community history. He's just like the ultimate perfect labor leader because he's active in the community.
0: An unnamed Biden administration official says Walsh is expected to leave his post after the president's State of the Union address. That would make him the first Biden cabinet secretary to quit. Slavery took place in more areas of Boston than historians previously thought. That is the finding of a new report that shows nearly 60 black and indigenous people were enslaved by white people from a church in Roxbury in the 16 and 1700s. Byron Rushing is the president of the Roxbury Historical Society, a commission the report. Rushing says historians must look locally to find answers to big-picture questions, such as why slavery became normalized.
22: I think we need to get the conversation shifted, and one of the ways to get that conversation shifted is not top-down, but bottom-up, and starting with the individual stories of as many people as you can find records of.
0: Rushing says the new information gives the city a better idea of its past. In the forecast could have a wintry mix tonight. Rain and sleet up until about 2 in the morning. Should be especially slick from Boston to areas south uh, all the way down to Foxborough. Lows tonight just about freezing. And then tomorrow partly sunny in the morning. Mostly sunny for the balance of the day. Windy and milder rising to the mid-40s. Thursday clouds move back in. Maybe rain late in the afternoon. Still up in the mid-40s though. 34 degrees now in Boston. The time is 6.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Pew Charitable Trusts, now sharing stories and
20: solutions from the front lines of America's mental health crisis on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org afterthefact the fact.
9: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
20: And
10: I'm Juana Summers. We start with the gripping scenes in southern Turkey as the country struggles to save people. There's damage across hundreds of miles of Turkey and northern Syria, with the death toll now over 7,000 in both countries. 20,000 more are injured, millions affected in one way or another, with many homeless in the winter cold. NPR's Ruth Sherlock made it to one of the worst-hit cities and saw rescue attempts there. She joins us now, and a note for listeners that some of the details of this conversation may be difficult to hear. Hi, Ruth. Hi. So, you went to a city you've reported from in the past. First, tell us where you were
11: and what you saw in your approach. Sure. Well, we set out from Adana, which is um, a city that's been spared from the worst of the impacts of the earthquake. And it's normally a two hour drive to Antakya, our destination, a city of about 400,000 people close to the border with Syria. On the way, we passed this huge fire at the port in a coast city. And then around 20 miles out of Antakya, we started seeing this constant stream of ambulances, you know, sirens, wailing, speeding out of town. Those coming in were people going to try to find loved ones they've lost touch with or bring medicines or food. Then we began to see the destruction. And I mean, building after building collapsed. And in one area, they were, you know, on either side of the road, there was just debris and I could smell rubber, dust, and clearly the putrid smell of dead bodies as well.
10: Oh my gosh,
11: Ruth, describe what you
10: saw of the rescue efforts there. What is it like?
11: Look, it's become clear that the damage is just much greater than any rescue teams can tackle. It feels utterly hopeless in there. You know, most of these were residential buildings and the earthquake happened in the dead of night. So people were asleep. You can only imagine how many are inside those that are destroyed. And there's so many destroyed that is just no way that rescue teams can get to all of them. I saw, you know, some rescue teams in official clothing on some buildings, some civilian volunteers, like we met these university students from another part of Turkey, on others. But then also there's dazed residents or desperate relatives just trying to go through the rubble. Well, it's, I mean,
10: it's incredibly heartbreaking. I understand that you spent several hours watching one rescue effort out of all of these. Can we just take a moment to talk about that story,
11: that one person and their family and what they experienced? Absolutely. So we came to this one building and it had these pink walls and it Used to be seven floors, but it was now half collapsed on its side. And I met this lady Hamide Mansorolu and she's in her 70s. And she was standing outside, watching intently, holding her head in her hands as this digger chipped away at the building. I was travelling with Erin O'Brien. She's a freelance journalist who works for The Economist, and and she helped translate the conversations we had with Hamide. Hamida told us she knows her son is inside, and she thinks he's alive um, because she's seen him trapped there. Oh my God, how did she find him? His brother dug with his dug with his hands to find him. So she says yesterday morning she'd seen him. She'd found him, and she'd seen him move a foot, but he was just trapped amid the collapsed concrete. So we stayed with his family as this uh, rescue worker with a digger, tried to, like, pull the rubble away. But you can imagine how dangerous that is. The building could collapse at any moment. And every time that he got close to where uh, Sadat, the man, was, his mum would, like, wince in terror and pain and shout out, be careful, be careful. And, you know, as time went on, we spoke with a rescue worker Um, there uh, who was trying to help. He didn't want to give his name.
31: He is
4: not sure if this guy's alive. He uh, he thinks he heard a sound but he can't be sure.
11: Um, Eventually they did find Sedat but um, it was too late. Uh, His body was brought out and wrapped in a blanket for his mother to say goodbye. Wow,
10: that's so tragic and I have to imagine there are stories and scenes like that that are being repeated all across the city
11: yes absolutely you know we went deeper inside towards the city center but the roads were cut by this point so we set out on foot and it was such a strange change because we went from this place of wailing sirens and drama to this kind of eerie silence with apocalyptic scenes there were rescue workers trying to pull people out of the rubble but without any machineries no cars no ambulances And on one street, we found six bodies that had just been wrapped in blankets from people's homes. We spoke to a rescue worker who stood near them, Shaheen.
24: (inaudible) (inaudible) You
11: know, he's saying for the buildings that collapse vertically, the floors crush in on each other. And from those buildings, they are not finding anyone coming out alive. And that's exactly the situation where we were buildings completely flattened. He says the six bodies are the only ones they've been able to pull out from under the rubble after a whole day of work.
10: Hmm. And and Antakya is close to Syria, Ruth, what can you tell us about the situation over the border?
11: Well, it's what we're hearing is that there are similar scenes to what we're seeing in Antakya, but one thing I should note is that Turkey is a big country with a powerful economy and a functioning government. In Syria, there's a civil war ongoing and this has happened in an area where there are already millions of refugees and rescue, you know, hospitals have been damaged in the conflict, there were already medical shortages before this earthquake happened. Now they're completely overwhelmed and rescue workers are trying to get people out of the rubble without the kind of equipment that we saw in Antakya. Um, You know, one question now for both countries is what happens next? There's going to be shortages of everything, water, food and fuel, all the basics that you need in these cities. And that's going to be a huge logistical challenge. And another question is what's going to happen to the likely hundreds of thousands of people who have now been left homeless? Just in Antakya alone, we didn't see one building standing that you could live in anymore. So the aftermath is going to be felt for a long, long time and the death toll is going to mount. That's NPR's Ruth Sherlock in southern Turkey. Ruth, thank you. Thank you.
9: Pennsylvania is still grappling with the legacy of the 2020 election more than two years later. Recent contests in the swing state have become hotbeds for election deniers and misinformation, and many local officials are concerned about how that could affect upcoming elections, including next year's presidential race. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports.
12: It's been 27 months since President Biden won the 2020 election, including in the Philadelphia suburb of Delaware County, Pennsylvania. But for the county solicitor, William Martin, that election is not over yet. Is Delaware County still dealing with lawsuits over the 2020 election results? Yes. In 2023? Yes. There are those lawsuits alleging election fraud with no substantial evidence. And there's the ongoing criticism that Martin and county election officials have had to face during public meetings.
13: I am profoundly offended to listen to baseless allegations of fraud against me and against other county workers.
12: At a county council meeting a month ago, Martin
13: hit a breaking point. It's time to put up or shut up. If you think there is fraud, sue me. Sue me. Sue me personally.
12: About three hours away in central Pennsylvania. This has got very heated and not
16: necessarily should be that
12: way. By Cumming County Commissioner Scott Metzger urged residents to be peaceful during a public meeting held last month about a hand recount of ballots from 2020.
14: If you are here to get in anyone's face or intimidate someone, you're in the wrong room
12: coming County election officials found no significant difference between the recount and their original tallies. Still, many election watchers are bracing for more misinformation from election deniers.
15: Those counties are dealing with people who, over and over, no matter how many times they've seen the evidence of the integrity of the election, continue to come and yell and be insulting and, and you know, maybe slightly less than before, but those pressures are absolutely still there.
12: That was Lisa Schaefer, who's the executive director of the County Commissioners Association of Pennsylvania. Schaefer says the reach election deniers have through social media has made it especially hard to fight off misinformation. And a lot of it is based on a state law that started allowing all voters in Pennsylvania to vote by mail in time for the 2020 election.
15: The fact that that was such a significant change for Pennsylvania all at once, that's where a lot of the attention has been
12: focused. Mail in voting has been a partisan flashpoint in the state with many Republicans attacking a way of voting that they once supported.
16: You know, we're a purple state, so it makes for a bit of a contentious conversation at times around democracy.
12: And it can get particularly contentious when there's a chance to swing Pennsylvania into the red or blue column, says Khalifa Lee, executive director of the advocacy group Common Cause Pennsylvania. There was a sign of hope, according to Susan Gobreski of the League of Women Voters of Pennsylvania. In last year's midterm elections, the state's most high-profile election denier, who was a Republican candidate for governor, lost.
17: I think people reacted to the misinformation that was out there by showing up, and I think that's a really good sign.
12: But back in Delaware County, Pennsylvania, William Martin, the county solicitor, does not sound as optimistic. Where do you think this is going? I'm not sure that
13: I see any significant breakpoint or change that's likely to occur
12: in the next several years. The one exception, Martin says, would be if more Republicans in Pennsylvania start publicly embracing mail-in voting as a way to vote that's just as valid as showing up in person at the polls. Anzi LeWong, NPR
36: News.
10: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming
0: up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the unstoppable author Salman Rushdie with a new book months after he suffered a stabbing. A solid upswing for stocks on Wall Street today. The Dow rose more than three-quarters of a percent, 266 points, to close at 34,157. S&P gained more than one and a quarter percent to finish at 4,164. The Nasdaq picked up almost two percent to end the day at 12,114. General Electric is moving its headquarters in Boston. The company said today it's going to relocate from its spacious Fort Point location to a space about three times smaller in the downtown tower, one financial center. GE moved from Connecticut to Fort Point seven years ago. It said last year it would be downsizing as part of a plan to become a trimmer company and as part of a restructuring to divide it into three independent companies. Business news comes up at 6.30 on Marketplace. It's now 6.20.
8: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Maplewood Country Day Camp, family-run for 57 years, with children's programs designed to teach life skills, putting the fun in fundamentals. Maplewoodyearround.com.
0: Four teams are taking to the ice today for the 44th annual Women's Beanpot Hockey Tournament. Harvard looks to defeat uh, defend its title, that is, when it takes on Boston College at 7.30. This afternoon, Northeastern beat Boston University 4-1. The winners face off in the championship game next Tuesday.
18: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu slash globe. And Stanhope Framers, Back Bay in Somerville, celebrating 50 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. Stanhopeframers.com.
34: Sending your Valentine Winston flowers from WBUR supports your commitment to curiosity. Order yours now to save 10%. Visit WBUR.org
0: could be slick in parts of the area tonight. Sleet and rain up until about two in the morning, temperatures about 30 degrees overnight. Then for tomorrow, sunshine, milder temperatures too, up in the mid-40s. This is WBUR.
10: It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And
9: I'm Ari Shapiro. One of President Biden's guests at tonight's State of the Union address will be a father from New Hampshire who lost his daughter to a fentanyl overdose. Biden addresses the nation as the opioid epidemic has evolved into a far more deadly public health crisis. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann looks at how we got here and what might come next.
21: One thing everyone agrees on, the soaring death toll from the opioid fentanyl crisis is shattering families, scarring whole communities. Brandon Dunn from Texas lost his 15-year-old son Noah to a fentanyl overdose last summer.
1: He was murdered by a drug dealer selling counterfeit Percocet pills. Noah was the third victim in less than two months in Hayes County from illicit
21: fentanyl. Dunn testified before the House Judiciary Committee last week. The U.S. has really been navigating two public health crises at the same time, the COVID pandemic and an explosion of drug deaths linked to fentanyl. After Ruhu Gupta heads the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy.
22: Our nation is facing 108,000 overdose deaths in just 12 months. That's one life lost every five minutes around the clock. We're living in historic times. Our North Star is to save lives.
21: The Biden administration has focused its response on health care, trying to get more addiction treatment to more people, while also scrambling to make a medication that reverses opioid overdoses called naloxone or Narcan more widely available. Gupta says these strategies are helping.
22: After more than 35% increase in overdose deaths during the first 18 months of the pandemic, The more recent total overdose death counts have remained largely unchanged.
21: So the overdose epidemic may be slowing just a bit, but researchers still say the U.S. is on track to lose another 1.2 million lives to opioid overdoses by the end of this decade. The fentanyl that's killing so many people is flowing into the U.S. from Mexico. The Drug Enforcement Administration says the leaders of drug cartels have decided fentanyl is a moneymaker, cheap to make, easy to smuggle through official ports of entry, and the cartels simply don't care if it kills a lot of Americans.
14: We're not winning. We're losing the battle.
21: Congressman David Trone, a Democrat from Maryland, says fentanyl smuggling can't be seriously curtailed with anything short of a large U.S. military presence inside Mexico, which he says is unrealistic.
14: My belief is there's absolutely no way to stop it. If we could you know, do major raids in Mexico with our military. It's not our country, it's their country. They've chosen not to go after the drug traffickers.
21: This is why the Biden administration is focusing mostly on healthcare. There's a growing conviction among Democrats and many drug policy experts that illicit fentanyl is now a permanent fixture on American streets. But many Republicans are pushing back, arguing more can be done to secure the border and often falsely linking fentanyl with undocumented migrants. Congressman Chip Roy from Texas spoke at last week's judiciary hearing.
14: The overwhelming flood at our borders, distracting Border Patrol from being able to carry out their duty to stop the flow between the ports of entry or do inspections at the ports of entry is resulting in more fentanyl pouring into our communities
21: but republicans haven't suggested specific policy ideas or strategies that might seriously slow fentanyl trafficking. So as President Biden speaks tonight, fentanyl has joined the covid pandemic as a public health crisis that's also a fault line in America's political divide. Brian Mann, NPR News.
10: Today, Salman Rushdie is publishing his 15th novel, Victory City. Even being able to say that is a minor miracle. Rushdie was attacked on stage last summer while giving a talk. There had been a fatwa against his life issued by the Ayatollah of Iran in 1989. But for the past two decades, he'd lived in relative freedom in the United States. Rushdie had completed the new novel just before the attack. NPR's Bilal Qureshi has this story.
23: Salman Rushdie had not spoken out since the attempt on his life last August. But with the release of his new book, he's given one interview to the New Yorker magazine's David Remnick and finally described how he's healing. Can you type?
24: Not not very well because of the lack of feeling in the fingertips. The big injuries was here. It's right under
18: your right jaw.
24: And yes, the neck, and neck. The neck and and up around here, the mm-hmm. right side of my face. There was a lot there. There were chest wounds.
23: And the liver was injured. Rushdie has lost sight in his right eye, and he is only slowly regaining use of one of his hands. I've tried very hard not to adopt the role of a
24: victim. You know, then you're just sitting there saying, you know, somebody stuck a knife in me, for me. You, know. you don't which, feel that which way? Which I ever? do sometimes <laughs> think. too. <laughs> it hurts. Um, it hurts. But what I don't think is that's what I want people reading the book to think. I want them to be captured by the tale and to be carried away and to enjoy being in it and to want to know what happens next and, and, you know, to read a book.
23: That book is Victory City, and here is its opening. On the last day of her life,
25: when she was 247 years old, the blind poet, miracle worker, and prophetess, Pampa Kampana, completed her immense narrative poem about Bisnaga and buried it in a clay pot sealed with wax.
23: Victory City is a historical epic about storytelling. It's inspired by a real Hindu kingdom called Vijayanagar that was destroyed by Muslim armies in the 16th century. All that remains today is a city of ruins that has become a symbol of Hindu-Muslim conflict. That past has been used by India's ruling Hindu nationalist movement to create divisions in the present, as the writer Kiran Desai explains.
26: History is far more complicated than the way it is being presented today and the nationalist view of history is different from the novelist view of history.
23: Rushdie reclaims the wounded narrative of Vijayanagar from Hindu nationalism and turns it into a secular feminist work of fiction. He puts women at the center of his story and his city, recasting Vijayanagar as a place of magic and multiplicity across time. The writer Atish Tasir says that's the magic of Rushdie's fiction.
22: Rushdie's job has been, I think he's a chronicler. He goes place to place, whether it's Muslim Spain, whether it's a Vijaynagar. It, it's to find those places where there's this sort of historical controversy, historical fractures of those moments in one's past or in the past of a country that won't go away, that continue to send echoes into the present.
23: Filmmaker Deepa Mehta is a close friend of Rushdie's and read an early version of
27: Victory City. I'm so happy that I'd read the book before the attack and I'd reread it after the attack. Yes, of course I kept on feeling, oh my God, this is uncanny, this is ironic, but never did I ever for a minute feel that it had gained some kind of dark power because of the attack. It was as powerful as it ever was because it was brilliant.
23: Throughout his career, Salman Rushdie has championed writers from around the world and stood with them in the face of censorship. Kiran Desai says she sees the new novel as his gift to both readers and to writers.
26: You know, I think every writer should read this book. It's just a distillation of wisdom.
25: I myself am nothing now. All that remains is the city of words. Words are the only victors.
24: I'm here now, and, I, and I've always been, one of the ways in which I dealt with this whole thing is is to look forward and not backwards. What happens tomorrow is more, more important
23: than what happened yesterday. Salman Rushdie's full interview with The New Yorker is in the magazine and on the latest episode of The New Yorker Radio Hour. His new novel, Victory City, is published today. Bilal Qureshi, PR News.
9: This is NPR News.
0: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR
8: and Public Radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com.